following is a presentation from the MJ cast the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson you're listening to the MJ cast by MJ fans or MJ fans the idea is to uh, innovate or else why, why am I doing it when I create my music I feel like an instrument of nature you let it create itself really I know I do and I love to entertain that's that's one of my favorite things Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning from Western Australia. Welcome to episode 45 of the MJ Cast for your Dangerous 25 Roundtable Discussion. I am Q. I will be moderating today's roundtable discussion and quite honestly, I am really nervous. I have actually never done anything like this before, so wish me luck and uh, be kind. Be kind. Rewind. Okay, so today we have an amazing group of people that are going to be discussing the incredible Dangerous album and era. We are joined by Jamin in Mission Control. So you won't be hearing much, if anything, uh, from Jamin today, but he is here. He is in Mission Control and doing all the uh, backstage stuff. But I'm also joined by, and in no particular order, except what I've quickly written down here, we've got Elizabeth Amazu, Andy Healy, Samar. We've got Mike Smallcomb and James Alley. So what we're going to do uh, to start off the roundtable today for this incredible discussion that I'm really looking forward to, to participating in and hearing is uh, we'll go around the roundtable and let um, everyone introduce themselves and maybe share the favourite song from the Dangerous album. So I'm going to start off with Elizabeth Amazu, who is author of The Dangerous Philosophies of Michael Jackson, which has just been recently released, co-host of the Dream Lives On podcast, and works over at the michaeljacksonstudies.org website. Elizabeth, for the very first time, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the MJ cast. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Pleasure. Wondering if you could do a quick little introduction of yourself and if you'd love to share your favourite song from the Dangerous album. Yeah, so my I'm, I'm Elizabeth, as you've mentioned, and I recently published the first academic textbook on Michael Jackson, which is kind of exciting. And my favourite song from Dangerous is to be Remember the Time. Uh, but my secret favourite song <laughs> is She Drives Me Wild. So, yeah, it's those nice. two for sure. Awesome. That's so cool. All righty. Andy Healy, hello. Welcome back to the show. It's so great that you could join us. Hey, guys. Thanks. It's uh, nice to be here again. Thanks for having me on. Always an absolute pleasure. Say so, so hi to everyone and share your favourite song from the Dangerous album. Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, so my favourite would have to be Who Is It? without doubt, just, you know, a sublime uh, kind of slow burn funk track that uh, 
that just gets me every single time. Good pick. And Andy, I believe sometime in the next few weeks, there will be a new episode in the MJ 101 book series. That's right. Yeah, I'm uh, planning to release on November 26, a supplement just on the Dangerous album. So uh, in some way commemorating the 25th anniversary of, uh, of Michael's Dangerous album. Awesome. So looking forward to that. All right. And uh, Sam, how are you? Thank you so much. I'm so excited that we are finally on an episode together. Thank you for joining us. Can you just let everyone know where you're from, sort of your involvement and uh, your favorite track off the Dangerous album? Of course, Sam. Hi, Q. Very, very nice to finally speak to you. Um, I am in London in the UK. Um, obviously, part of the Michael Jackson Academia Project at the MJAP. Uh, of course, massive Michael Jackson fan. Uh, Dangerous, favourite song on the Dangerous album? That's a really, really tough question. I haven't even thought about it. How embarrassing. Um, <laughs> you could ca- maybe Can I have, have one? Or, can, I, can I have two? Go to. Go to. All right. If I say, remember the time, because... It's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful song and kind of, again, sums up the juxtaposition that Michael Jackson was so great at doing, making a really, really tragic love song danceable, which he was so brilliant at doing. <laughs> like Billie Jean, for example, is like a very, very dark, sad, you know, song with so much kind of heavy baggage, but they play it in the nightclubs in London still to this day and people dance to it, which is quite odd. Um, Love that. The, there's so many elements of the song which I love. Mostly, I really love the uh, kind of chairman of the board thing he does at the end, which I, <laughs> yes. he never does on any other song. I can't think oh. of yet. But I loved it so much when he did it because it was so kind of, it seems to be so spontaneous. I don't know how spontaneous it was, but it just, it's like Michael being so full of life. He's just giving it all. And then my second one would be Keep the Faith because I love gospel music. I love Michael Jackson, and anytime Michael Jackson did gospel music, I was there for it. And it's probably vocally his greatest uh, record ever, I imagine. Oh, the vocals so, at the end of that track—you cannot beat. He just go. Sure. He, it's almost as if, like, and he spoke. He used to speak about transcending, how he transcend through dance, how he'd remove and not remove himself, but elevate himself from it, you know the, his physical body. And I, I said on previous shows that there were moments in shows that I've seen on YouTube where Michael is performing or he's singing and it's as if he's about to take off. It's almost as if he's about to levitate because he's just gone into a different dimension. By the end of Keep the Faith, he's vocally out of his body. He's just, yeah. and you can feel it. If you are in tune to Michael, if you love him and if you've loved his music up until that point, you're there with him when he's going. Awesome. Okay, Mike, welcome back to the show. It's been awesome uh, reading your book this year and uh, welcome back to the show. It's really great to have you with us. Say hi to everyone, introduce yourself and if you could share your favourite track. Yeah, hi, it's Mike Smallcomb here, uh, author of Making Michael Inside the Career of Michael Jackson, uh, which I have to reiterate is about Michael's career, not personal life. Uh, Yeah, great to be back. Thanks for having me. I had a great time speaking to you guys last time. Really happy to be back. Uh, my favourite track has to be, I want to pick three, but obviously I've, uh, that's cheating a little bit. So I'm going to go with Will You Be There, Ooh. just for its wonderful melody and production in three separate parts. I just think it's an amazing track. It's quite an experience, that song, when it's really loud and there's no other distraction. Good pick. 
And James. James Alay, welcome back to the MJ cast. Thank you for everything. And uh, say hi to everyone and introduce your favorite track. Sure. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is James Alay. I'm in the U.S. I'm a researcher. I've been involved in um, the uh, Truth Untold project and campaign. I, I work with uh, Damien Shields. I worked on uh, Escape Origins with him, uh, as well as uh, uh, with you guys at the MJ cast. My favorite Michael Jackson song and song on the Dangerous album is Will You Be There? Um, I'm with you, Mike. That's an amazing track. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. That was really cool. So I'm going to drop my favorite in, which was really, really hard. And it probably changes every week. But this week, and it has been for a while, actually, my favorite track is actually Jam. I really love Jam. I think it's an awesome album opening He's literally breaking the glass ceiling right there, starting it off after all these achievements. So, yeah. And just quickly, before we get into the topics today, I was just wondering how you were all sort of first exposed to the Dangerous album. I'm sure everyone's got some really, really different stories. So we'll probably just maybe keep the same order for now. And if you could really sort of quickly share with the listeners uh, of the MJ cast, how you were first exposed to the Dangerous album. So, Elizabeth, how, how did you first come to hear or experience anything from the Dangerous album? Yeah, I was about four years old when the Dangerous album was released. And it was just, I remember, like, really, I was, like, obsessed with Michael Jackson for, like, three years old, really. I think it was really early. And I was ready like waiting up with my mother as like a little four-year-old to watch the premiere when it was on television this is back in the day when there was like four channels on tv or something and mm. um i remember watching it watching the black or white release the black or white film short film as it was released and then it wasn't until i was about 11 then i that i received the cd for a, like a present for a birthday present so it was actually years later that I actually listened, got to listen to the entire album. Yeah, so that was my first kind of engagement with, with the work. That was, back in the, that was back in the time when, you know, we didn't have YouTube and things like that. So you'd have to wait for something to come on before yeah. you could really experience it. So that was the that sort of world premiere of the, of the video, was it? Yes, it was, the, it was the very first showing. And everybody, I think everybody in, and anybody was just up watching that when it came out and I was about I was really small and I was one of those and I was really blown away by the panther dance in particular really small really impressionable <laughs> made an impression <laughs> that Michael and his influencing impressionable youth out there <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome thank you so much so now over to Andy Healy how did you first get exposed to dangerous so yeah I um I'm actually old enough. I've been a fan since Off the Wall. So uh, I was there driving to school, uh, driving to university, when Black and White first debuted on radio. And I remember just uh, it was kind of like one of those set your set your alarm clocks for, and hearing it and just being really excited by the project. Actually going to the to the record store and in, in the days when you would pre-order records. And so uh, yeah, I was there for the day of release uh, on November 26th and picked it up. And, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, fell in love instantly with the album and was happy to see Michael kind of continuing to push forward his, uh, his musical landscape. That is awesome. If it fits in any of these uh, discussion topics or in later in one of these episodes, if we get a chance, I'll, I'd love to hear how someone coming from the bad 
album and then hearing the the first track of the dangerous album how that sort of compared for you so that would be a really cool story to hear later thanks so much for that andy awesome all right so sam i'm going to ask you now for a short answer for if you could tell how you could share your first uh exposing of the dangerous album of course yeah so the first exposure i had to the dangerous album would have been the radio premiere of black or white um which I actually, uh, I, tr- I, I, was tr- I was going to deliberately try to avoid it because I didn't want to hear it until I saw the video with the song. But then I thought I might hear it on a radio, I might hear it when I'm out and about. So I heard the kind of uh, radio premiere of uh, Black or White uh, in the UK. And it was oddly, it was kind of quintessential Michael. It wasn't anything brand new for us. You know, it wasn't, we'd heard about all the new Jack Swing stuff that was about to come with seeing interviews with Teddy Riley on the TV leading up to the release of Dangerous. But black or white was pretty much standard Michael Jackson fair. Magnificent, though. Absolutely magnificent. Thank you so much. All right. Mike, how about you? My sister, uh, Dangerous, was my sister's first album that she received. So I was also very young. But unlike Elizabeth, I would hear the full album every day (laughs) because of my sister. And in terms of videos, we had I was living in Germany at the time. And the first video I actually remember on MTV wasn't black or white, but it was Remember the Time. Another big world premiere, wasn't it? It was. And then a couple of years later, I actually had Dangerous on cassette for myself. And as we know, it's you know, separated into a, you know, the A side, the B side. And I noticed, obviously, that the A side sounded much different to you know, the B side. And eventually, it was, I found out that the A side was you know, Teddy Riley and the B side was Bruce Swidian and believe a trail so you know I, I was fascinated as to why those two sides sounded so different and obviously eventually as i got older i found out why james like uh, elizabeth um my first exposure day i was a big i was already a big michael jackson fan and, and my first exposure was the black or white premiere and i think i realized as an adult i think from a marketing perspective i was i was the target audience for for that campaign i was a seven or eight year old boy and Macaulay Culkin, you know, I was a seven-year-old boy in the suburbs of Chicago. Bart Simpson, Macaulay Culkin, I mean, every kid at school that next day, I think it aired on a Sunday evening, that next day, it was all Michael Jackson. And uh, um, I had gotten the album that Christmas, and uh, uh, I'd actually gotten Dangerous and Triumph, and Destiny, which were, uh, you know, my parents already owned Thriller and Bad. So Dangerous was that moment where I really became a sort of individualized, full-on Michael Jackson fan. Whoa, getting all those albums in one hit, that's that's enough to melt your brain. That's awesome. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, good yeah. Music. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing that. That was really awesome. And I reckon there'll be a lot of people out there that can can relate to those. So today we're going to be talking about so many different aspects of the Dangerous album and era as well. And I guess really one of the best places to start would be the sound of Dangerous. So Dangerous was, I guess, a new MJ sound for a whole new era. Off the Wall, Thriller and Bad had had all somewhat a consistent sound. And Dangerous dropped with an unapologetic New Jack and more hip-hop-inspired sound with uh, obviously less Quincy. 
So I guess there were a few sonic throwbacks, remember the time and gone too soon. But how was this for you guys when you first heard the album and how did this contribute to Michael's musical and artistic journey? And and was it was it Andy that you sort of had been a fan for a long time and you I was gonna ask you if you sort of could maybe share the difference between sort of the bad era sound and the new sound? Is this a good place to sort of start with that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because you'd heard, you know, prior to Dangerous, basically the gaps between bad and dangerous sonically from Michael were, um, you know, the Sammy Davis Jr. performance. You saw him in the LA Gear commercials, uh, but there was no music for those. And then... You know, the the kind of the work with, um, you know, do the Bartman and things like that. So it was an interesting time to kind of think where Michael was going to go. Um, obviously, New Jack Swing had been kind of the predominant sound in the R&B landscape from like, you know, the late 80s through to the early 90s. I was already a big fan of Teddy Riley with his work with Guy, uh, his own group, um, and also his production stuff that he did for Bobby Brown on My Prerogative and the Don't Be Cruel album. So hearing Teddy was involved, you kind of thought, okay, Michael's going for a, I hate to say a more current sound because I think Michael was always current, but there was a concern for me at least about was it going to be typical New Jack Swing or was he going to add something to it? So actually listening to the album in its entirety the first time out, I just fell in love with it. I loved that it had those definite elements of New Jack, but Michael and Teddy were kind of, it felt like they were pushing it forward. They were making it feel more timeless. So, you know, in a song like Remember the Time that sort of looked back to kind of the arrangements of Off the Wall, but also stayed current and in a sense looked forward to where R&B and New Jack uh, would kind of progress to. It was just a really, you know, great, solid album. And I think it was Mike who mentioned, you know, having it on cassette. You know, the different learning, uh, listening experiences, listening to it on CD, where it's just, you know, a continuous flow of music, listening to it on vinyl, which was, you know, a, a double album. So you had side A, side B, finishing at Heal the World, and then side C, kicking off with Black or White. You really got that distinction as well of, uh, you know, Teddy Riley and then kind of Michael and Bill Petrell, and also Bruce Swedeen kind of helping out on, on various projects across the board. So it was really interesting to to kind of hear that and compare it to what Quincy was doing um, with Michael. And for me, Bad, as much as I loved the Bad album, it felt like a point in time from a production um, point of view. It felt like it definitely was that year in the 1980s. And listening back now, you can, you know, you can, for me at least, you definitely hear the sounds of that time. Whereas with Dangerous, I think it's probably weathered a little bit more the the passing of time it still sounds really current you can listen to a who is it you can listen to a jam you can listen to a will you be there and everything remember the time everything still sounds really fresh so i think it's got a little bit more of a timeless quality to it and i know some people have called it his most comprehensive album that's up for debate but it was just a you know a great experience to kind of be listening to that in that environment where, you know, the, the landscape really was about to change with the arrival of Nirvana, but just hearing all that kind of, you know, sonic quality and feeling that it was progressing forward and Michael's sound was progressing as well was really exciting. Awesome. 
Elizabeth, what about yourself? Yeah, I really, you know, I really take on board what Andy said. I think Andy's really correct in terms, especially when he talks about things like Nirvana and grunge music and like where Michael was, you know, we, we went to place, place Michael in his context, you know. He was, it was like, Susan Fast calls it the death of pop. Like pop was like having this dying gasp at that time. But I also think that like Michael Jackson just embraced fully what pop music, the you know, the best and most exciting aspects of pop music. And with Dangerous, I think it's a sense that his musical palette had really matured in terms of his own self-expression. You know, I think one of the things that's so beautiful about Dangerous is if you do take the time to re-listen to the album just in its entirety. And I think, I don't know, it's seven, seven minutes or so. And we don't really do that so much anymore because we're used to our one track, play my favourite track again and again, put it on repeat. You know, we move our iTunes playlist around. But if you do just take that album as a whole and you just listen to it right through, there is like a forcefulness of the music. There's like a certainty in it. And it's just incredibly... um, it's just incredibly powerful in terms of like this intention of like Susan Fast calls it noise, but basically there's an intention there to kind of grab your your attention and hold it for that entire time. And I find that something that's so unique to Dangerous that, you know, James said something like I think he got quite a few albums at once. And I got pretty much most of my Michael Jackson albums at the age of 11. I got them all, like all of them at once. Whoa. So you can imagine how that was. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> how did you ever leave the house? It was two years of, like, I had like one of those CD Walkmans back in the day. It was like two years of Michael Jackson. <laughs> I was like, would you listen to anything else? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. So yeah, it was like, it's the sense that it's like a sonic, spectacle it's like this thrilling exciting powerful spectacle and I just think that's the unique flavor of dangerous that it's something that you're supposed to kind of immerse yourself in and supposed to really captivate your attention for the entirety of that album I suppose I can offer a little bit about the background as to how that sound uh, you know how, how he had the first six tracks of Teddy Riley and then the rest being completely different um Michael started working on what became Dangerous um, in early 89. Um, obviously, he wanted to you know, move on um, in terms of independence uh, away from Quincy Jones. So Michael started out with pretty much the shadow, uh, you know, the B team that worked on Bad. So you had Matt Forger, uh, Bill Petrell, um, John Barnes as well for, for a short while. So Michael was working on sort of the songs that he would often write and the sound that he could produce. So you've got, you've got Heal the World in there. Um, who is it? And then Bill Betrayal obviously offered what helped with Black or White. And uh, so Michael was working on uh, the, what became Dangerous about 18 months. Where uh, Bruce Wadian came in later as well, of course. So he helped with Will You Be There? Um, Gone Too Soon? Keep the Faith? So now we're 18 months down the line, um, it's late 1990, um, and Michael wasn't really satisfied with the sound of some of the material. He, he thought something was missing. And what was missing was something that you know, he wanted to be more contemporary and modern. So I think it was Andy who said uh, Dangerous was very current, and it was, because you know, Michael was looking for something contemporary, modern, and something with like a real driving snare. 
that Michael was trying to you know relate to you know something really street you know, young people that people could ident- identify with away from Quincy Jones and that person that Michael identified as you know, the man who could bring that sound to the project was Teddy Riley um, you know, the, the new Jack King um, but Riley brought you know those sounds to the project that had never featured on a Michael album before and they were they were really aggressive mechanical hard edge songs some of them like Jam and She Drives Me Wild and you know, Dangerous became the first album where Michael really tried to follow the lead of other artists around him as well so he you know, he, he looked up to the Beatles and realised that the Beatles were leaders. They never looked around at what anyone else was doing, but Michael was dangerous. You know, Michael was a go-to artist as well. People were looking at what Michael was doing, but for Dangerous, Michael thought, what are other people doing? So instead of being the leader a little bit, he was looking at what others were doing, and that's how Teddy Riley came in and how those sounds ended up on Dangerous. Do you think he even looked a bit at Janet with, like, Jam and Lewis and their oh, collaboration? Definitely. Yes, definitely. Um he approached Jam and Lewis. We know the story of um, you know the the, uh, the Janet album. Um, he lo- Michael loved it. He contacted Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam, but they were loyal to Janet and they turned him down. And another it was L.A. Reid and Babyface. Michael brought them in as well, but they they just didn't have what Teddy Riley had. Well, it's interesting actually because. Um... I was a massive New Jack Swing fan uh, um, when that whole sound and that whole movement came in. So um, I think, I mean, depending on who you talk to, Teddy Riley will say Keith Sweat's, uh, uh, what was the song, first Keith Sweat song that he did? That He said that was the first New Jack Swing song. I'm going to get kicked, my ass kicked from all the uh, Americans now. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Keith Sweat apparently was the first of the New Jack Swing artists that Teddy Riley said that was the original sound. That was the first song uh, that they did. Um, I will get the song in a second. Um, and then obviously onto Bobby Brown. And uh, I suppose New Edition did it to a degree. Um, but Bobby Brown was basically king of New Jack Swing by the time Michael had kind of uh, started using the sound. Um, and... It wasn't so much. A, it was quite a natural departure for, for Michael to go to that because he was already going to a kind of hard edge sound on bad. You know, we talked about on the last episode I, I was on about bad being a hip hop, a, a rap song. It's not Michael singing. It's Michael rapping. Um, and you get much more of a feel on that on the 12 inch of bad uh, where he has the kind of guitar solo with David kicking in with the guitar and uh, Michael kind of rapping on top of that. And even in the video at the end of the song where he starts kind of having the back and forth with the backing vocalists or the guys on the subway with him. That's clearly hip-hop influenced. And so it was a natural pro- progression. But uh, I read so many things around the time when that album came out that originally, this is what I'd read, I don't know how true Brad Sinberg would have plenty to say if he was on the show, but um, what I'd originally heard was that the album, Michael wanted it to be three separate albums. Similarly to, uh, I think Guns N' Roses had released Use Your Illusion 1 and then Use Your Illusion 2. And the story was that Michael wanted to release Dangerous as three albums as opposed to Guns N' Roses 2. Um, and I'm not sure how true that story is, but I do get the feeling of that on the album. So, for example, it, it, side one is very kind of heavily balanced towards the new Jack Swing. The beginning of side two is very heavily kind of rock-inspired and kind of organic-inspired and then the end of the album from about where Will You Be There onwards is very gospel-inspired. 
So um, the story was that there were actually there were actually three separate albums that he was trying to record, and that's what he wanted to release. And it may well have been the case, and that may well have been something that he was planning on doing. So yeah, the New Jack Swing stuff was a natural progression. But you know, I was a massive New Jack Swing fan, but I I didn't really feel the MJ versions, the MJ version of New Jack Swing. To be honest, to be brutally honest with you, there were a couple of songs that you know, remember the time is one of the great Michael Jackson songs of all time. Just a incredible record very few records sound like it and even the new jack swing songs that do sound like it and there are some and i remember years and years ago myself and charlie uh who's unfortunately not on the show today but we were in a forum a michael jackson forum discussing the new jack swing songs that um uh sound very <coughs> very similar to stuff that's on dangerous and there's a couple of groups and a couple of artists that teddy riley was working with where it's almost as if he's lifted tracks from the work he was doing with them and just given them kind of wholesale to Michael. So there's a group called Today who uh, Teddy Riley worked with and there's a track called Why Why, Why You Get Funky On Me. Um, and this is really going back in the, into the kind of depths of time. Worth digging out. Have a listen to it on YouTube. There's a lot of Remember the Time in that. And uh, the lead singer of the group was called a guy called Bubba. And... Uh, he released a couple. He released a, uh, a, um, a solo single called "I Like Your Style." Again, like "Why You Get Funky on Me" has a lot of "Remember the Time" in it. So that kind of swing sound that you can kind of hear throughout the "Remember the Time" song, it's very, very similar to the stuff that Today and Big Bubba had done. Also, the intro track "Jam." I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with Guy, the Teddy Riley's group. Do you remember them? Oh yes. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why Michael. Yeah, Riley. so he loved Guy. Yeah, yeah. So if you listen to their album, The Future, which was a fantastic album, and it's you know it kills me after what's happened with the Casio songs and Teddy Riley and all of that stuff. That I used to love Guy, and I went to see them in concert many moons ago at the Hammersmith Apollo back in '91, I think '91 or '92. And The Future again, the album, the Guy album, has a lot of distinctive sounds that you can find later on on uh, the, the Dangerous album. So the intro track, for example, her. The track is called Her um, by Guy. Almost identical rhythm track to, to Jam. It's also the opening track to the future album. If you're a Michael Jackson fan, worth digging out and it's worth listening to because it's very, very similar in its approach to Jam, which is a brilliant song in itself. Where the thing, where things dif differentiate between Michael between other New Jack Swing artists is the lyrical content and the sound uh, and the uh, and what he was saying in the song. So. For example, Bobby Brown would never talk about, you know, she prays to Buddha, she's, you know, the Talmud song and all of those things. They would never be pop, brought up as references in a in a Bobby Brown track, for example, or a Keith Sweat song. Or, you know, the stuff Michael Jackson sings about in Why You Want to Trip on Me. I think, again, that you can listen to that and you can compare it to, you know, Bobby's My Prerogative, which Michael must have loved. He must have loved that song because Why You Want to Trip on Me has a similar sentiment to it. Yeah, so the New Jack Swing stuff isn't that much of a departure, really. I mean, obviously, he's gone for a newer, fresher producer, but Ep Michael was already kind of going down a hip-hop-inspired um, Natural sound. progression. It natural. was a natural progression. It was a natural awesome. progression because, like I said, on Bad, you know, the intro song is a hip-hop, it's a rap song, even though it's Michael Jackson doing it. The way you make me feel, you know, it's set in the, it's set in, you know, a, a, a ghetto of some sort MJ's busting out the Crips blue 
Um, <laughs> you know, he's there. The, the, the phrase I remember many moons ago, um, NWA were being criticized for um, uh, glamorizing, uh, you know, the kind of gangster rap. And they, they, they shot back and said, listen, Michael Jackson with the gangsters, you see him in the videos. No one says anything about that. And if you look at, you know, how MJ was presenting himself in the bad era, in the subways, on the streets, you know, hanging with the kind of gangbangers, that was how he was presenting himself, even if it was in a more kind of theatrical way. So the New Jack Swing stuff wasn't such a departure. I just didn't really feel it, though. I didn't believe it. <laughs> That's the only way I can say it. I mean, In the Closet, for example, is a brilliant song, but it's not, it's not a traditional kind of New Jack Swing song. If you listen to Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel album, for example, or, you know, um, again, albums from that era, uh, even, again, Guy's album from that era, they, they, were, they, were, they, they spoke in a language. Like A good example is PYT, for example. Michael, in his autobiography, talks about the lyrics in there, and he, he talks about them, and he says he loved the words, the phrases, things like tenderoni. Um, Bobby Brown obviously had Ron, uh, uh, Ronnie on his uh, album uh, Don't Be Cruel and it was the language that young kind of uh, city slicking you know black kids were using and MJ loved it at the time And but by the time he's you know in his early 30s those kind, that kind of phraseology doesn't really you can't really hit the same market you can't go for like the market that Bobby Brown was going for which was like 16, 17 year olds you can't really hit the, those same people so you know, it was a more kind of sophisticated sound, but I mean, it's still great. It's still it is still great. It's just I don't I didn't feel it as believable as yeah. you know MJ's earlier stuff. Excellent, excellent insight and background, uh, everyone. There's, I think you know I I love New Jack Swing. Um, I, in fact, the last month my favorite go-to playlist on Spotify uh, is their New Jack Swing mix. It's awesome, and. Uh, I don't think Dangerous really, in hindsight, fits the mold in at least not the playlist that is New Jack Swing. And of course, I think remember the times on the Spotify playlist, there's, there's a number of Dangerous tracks on there. But there is a uh, certain timelessness that Dangerous pulled off, um, including the Riley tracks, that other New Jack Swing tracks did not pull off. And I think that was Michael pushing for it. And if you look at a lot of the songs rejected from the album, including essentially all the Brian Loren tracks, uh, La Face, Slave to the Rhythm, original version, they sound like 1991 or worse, 1989 or 1990 when, when they were made. Songs like Can't Let Her Get Away, um, songs like Why You Want to Trip on Me, songs like In the Closet, those Riley tracks that were so contemporary in that moment still sound very contemporary. Uh, maybe not contemporary, but almost futuristic today. They sort of always had this dark, futuristic, industrially edge to them sonically. And I think Dangerous really, really stands out in that regard. And if you want me to be honest, I was having a discussion with a friend the other, other day. We were sort of analyzing the Invincible album, and I think Michael was going for the exact same approach on Invincible with the Ronnie Jerkins tracks, you know, the, primarily the first three tracks um, that Jerkins produced, sort of that same Riley leading the album. Yeah, you're right. Michael told, told Roddy Jerkins, you can be my new Teddy Riley. I, I just thought I'd add that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, th I think 
I always talk about the formulas, you know, that sort of go into play when Michael's putting together a track list or an album. And, and um, I, I think that I think he sort of took the dangerous formula when sort of conceiving what what's going to what's going to make the cut. And I think even the track list in, in a lot of ways, um, Jerkins replaced Riley. The Jerkins tracks sound amazing in 2001. They sounded like the future in 2001. And now they sort of just sound dull and too slow. And they don't work the same way the Riley tracks work. The Riley tracks to this day still sound like the future. It's, it's really pretty amazing. I think that's an interesting observation because I think, you know, from Michael, if you look at Michael, not as songwriter, um, but look at him more from a production point of view, you know, he, he was very much the apprentice in Off the Wall, kind of getting his master's degree a bit with Thriller, definitely having more of a hands-on um, role in it with Bad. And then here, it's almost like Quincy drew the best out of Michael from a production point of view in those three albums. And then Michael pretty much did that to Teddy. You know, if you if you listen to the dangerous tracks that Teddy worked on versus Teddy Riley produced tracks on other stuff, you definitely hear Michael's stuff is on another level. They just kind of, he. I think he drew the best out of Teddy and I think Teddy also kind of drew the best out of Michael. Michael was still wanting to make sure there was melody, still wanting to make sure, you know, these were great songs, not just great grooves or, you know, not carbon copies of, of you know, of all the new Jack kind of tricks. And I think because of that, their relationship kind of continued on and, and you can see Michael kind of revisiting with Teddy on later albums. But I, but I think this was where they kind of really gelled the best and really pulled, pushed each other forwards and Michael really drew more out of Teddy than Teddy probably knew he had in him. And I think that's got a lot more credit to do with Michael than necessarily Teddy coming in and kind of saying, this is the sound we're gonna, I'm going to give you. It was more that, you know, Michael as master kind of helping Teddy kind of pull more out and, and push for more. I think you're absolutely right. And Andy, I would love to hear from you because I, I, I've always had this thought, like as an adult looking back, that um, that the the ninety entering the nineties for Michael Jackson must have been a very very high pressure moment. Things were changing dramatically in the industry, and you know, literally the decade changed. And Michael was the king of the eighties, and you know, and he came into the decade with a noticeably lighter skin color, without Quincy Jones, with you know, you know, what, a, what a pressure. And, and I'd love to hear what it was like, just what were the expectations and what was the Michael Jackson brand preceding dangerous? Well, I think it was interesting because you had, you know, coupled with the end of the decade, you also had, you know, Michael really being the tabloid fodder, kind of the post bad era. And I think part of dangerous's appeal is that this is Michael kind of wanting to refocus on the music. You know, this is Michael wanting to kind of reestablish himself in a new decade as still being a viable current artist, an exciting artist. I think, as you say, there's a lot of pressure on him. Um, I mean, for me, that period of um, of kind of October through to November, so you had uh, Prince's Diamonds and Pearls got released in October of that year. A week before Dangerous came out, U2 dropped um, Aktung Baby, and then a week later on November 26, Michael drops Dangerous. And, uh, you know, all you needed really was 
kind of Madonna in those um, Madonna and Janet to release an album kind of within those those couple of weeks. And you had a lot of the kind of heavy hitters from the 80s, you know, moving into that new decade. U2, a completely different sound for them. Prince kind of embracing more the hip hop kind of stylings with the MPG and Michael moving more in towards kind of, uh, you know, the new Jack Swing stuff. There was just, I always talk about, you know, there's a popularity cycle with Michael that he becomes everybody's darling till he becomes too successful and then it's easy just to hate on him because he's just so talented, so successful. And that kind of, you know, happened with Bad. There was kind of all the tabloid stories and stuff and even though Bad was a monster seller, everyone was kind of, you know, they might have had a bit of MJ fatigue, I guess, because, you know, here's another album and it's a blockbuster and here's five more number one singles and he's kind of everywhere. And then Dangerous hits... And there was that absence in a sense. So people were wondering what was he going to look like? What was he going to sound like? And thankfully, you know, the proof was in the music. He, he released an album that's really solid, that just has some great outstanding tracks on it, some of his best work. And it's more him at the helm. So I think a lot of people who thought he was, you know, Quincy Jones's puppet and all the success was really kind of 80-20 Quincy, 20 Michael, it kind of just reaffirmed uh, sorry, didn't reaffirm it. It, it, it um, affirmed Michael as being a, a driving talent in his own right. And it wasn't purely Quincy. It was more Michael driving the show by this stage and making a, a success of it. Andy, I know Dangerous. I think I checked the other day and on Wikipedia anyway, it said it sold, um, I think, 7 million copies in the US up at this point. So can we can we sort of say Dangerous was as successful as bad like i guess if you're counting it by number ones it's different how would you sort of say it stands up against the success of bad um look i think it's it depends how you want to equate success i mean people can look at album sales and number one singles and you know in the u.s at least michael only had one number one which was black or white off dangerous the other out the other singles charted and charted well but didn't hit number one whereas you know bad had five People also, which I always find an interesting discussion, and there's no doubting the impact of Nirvana and the the changing landscape of grunge, but people always say, you know, oh, Nirvana knocked off Michael Jackson at number one, you know, on on the Billboard charts. Yes, they did. Uh, He'd been number one for four weeks by that stage. Michael had knocked off U2. So you had U2 with Uptown Baby, Michael with Dangerous for four four weeks in comes nirvana with nevermind for one week and then they get knocked off by garth brooks <laughs> things right? were changing so quickly back then weren't they yeah it was like garth brooks then nirvana again and then i i had to look it up because i couldn't believe it but the longest running album at number one for that year when grunge was kind of taking over billy ray cyrus wow <laughs> let that just sink in so look, there's no denying. There's no denying in the musical landscape, grunge was a you know was a kind of the anti-pop, in the same way that the punk was to to disco and and definitely a movement there. And a lot of great artists came out of that era, but it wasn't like it was one or the other. You know, there was Michael was still charting. Now this could have been some of Michael's own hype, but I seem to recall it might have been at the American Music Awards in some tribute video thing to him where Dangerous reportedly was outselling, uh, was selling at a higher rate than Thriller was at it at, at a time, at, it, at, at its peak. 
Now, whether or not that's just, you know, Michael's great publicity machine kind of, you know, running that story, but that was an interesting kind of observation. It was, you know, definitely a successful album and by no means a step back for Michael. I personally think it's a it's a stronger album than Bad, but if you look at sales, you know, Bad probably outsells. Well, I think Michael has been so lucky in his career and even posthumously that his major um, events um, and releases uh, were timed with very unique economic circumstances. And when Dangerous came out, you know, it was one of the, if you look at the Eastern Bloc, the Iron Curtain, so to speak, that had fallen just a few years prior, Dangerous was the, the first uh, sort of major American superstar, Michael Jackson product that many of these consumers were exposed to. The music market throughout Europe at that time um, had, had been established. When Thriller had come out, the, uh, the music market you know, existed in, in a lot of uh, you know, first world Western Europe. Um, it, of course, it was prominent in the United States. It had just begun to blossom in Japan, home of the Walkman at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, that so much of the dangerous campaign and, and so much of the, the brilliance and the, the sort of business management during that era was to sort of say, hey, uh, this iron wall came down. You guys need a pop star. Here I am. And uh, that was Michael Jackson. The dangerous tour sort of sealed the deal. And, um, you know, just like Michael Jackson's huge presence in Japan, the first really big blockbuster American act in Japan, um, as its music market blossomed, Michael was the first big pop music star in Eastern Europe uh, as its music market blossomed. And then decade and a half later, Michael Jackson passes just as China and India establish its prominent westernized music market. And, you know, I mean, so much of this is its success is because of China. But, you know, th those those events have just been so fortunate for for his sales. Yeah, I'm just just confirming what I think Andy said um, about dangerous outselling thriller. That is true. Um, I think it's the first seven weeks it sold 10 million worldwide, and um, it was Michael's fastest selling album to that date. So yeah, that that is correct. This is like so interesting because what you guys have said is just like reminded me so much about the narratives that get constructed around Michael Jackson releases. They kind of get their own mythologies. Like there's always this concept that you know. Michael Jackson's representative of pop music and pop music died. And it's almost as though people kind of have a way of like kind of self-fulfilling prophecies. If we believe that, then it was true. And it really, as you know, from what you said, it just really wasn't true. Pop music wasn't really dying. It maybe was changing. Maybe it was moving into new avenues. And I think it's important for us to always, you know, mention Michael Jackson's global reach because a lot of times we, you know, we really rate Michael in terms of his success in America, which is very uh, limited for Michael Jackson, because predominantly what makes Michael Jackson's work unique is that he was so successful globally. And as James has said, you know, about the, the, the international market was blooming and blossoming and kept doing so throughout his career. And perhaps Dangerous marks that departure, perhaps, in like into that more internationally successful than locally successful 
time for Michael. He, which yeah. it was yeah. a it was a world tour that never hit the U.S. Absolutely, I mean he was at that point a global star, and, and uh, you know I think we relate his trial, which is part of the dangerous era in a lot of ways, to uh, sort of his the beginning of the end in the American market for him. But really, they saw the opportunity globally long before you know, they sort of had to, so to speak. Yeah, Sony realized that obviously the tabloids had really bashed Michael in the States, um, mid-80s, just before bad and then after bad. <clears throat> and yeah, Sony realized that, right, okay, dangerous, we don't need America, we've got the rest of the world.
brilliant new album, Dangerous, from Michael Jackson. Fourteen new songs, including the number one single. Seventy-six minutes of great music. Get dangerous. Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ Cast. So another type, another part about this sort of era, other than the changing music. Uh, the changing landscape across the world for music and the audience, I thought was also the changing album artworks at this time as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, something else that changed with Michael's albums at this point quite starkly was the album artwork. So the dangerous album cover, um, a puzzle, a mask, a carnival, a story, an extravaganza, an opus, it's like a treasure chest of hidden details what were the thoughts on Mark Ryden's album artwork and how it reflects on the diversity of what's inside the album? Elizabeth, if I could lead with you with that one. Thank you. I was about to jump in there. I was like, I don't know what mine if I... It's the album artwork, um, Q, is, you know, something that's always been, I think, with all of us as our experience of the Dangerous album, but it's not till this year... I was teaching a lesson. I teach a lesson on my online video course for Dangerous. And um, it's an entire week where the students online, they just learn about the cover. And in the implementation of that lesson in my course online, I had to really go quite in depth. And what I found is that, you know, the cover as we see it, it's, you know, it's an acrylic glaze painting. So this is the first thing that kind of in my um, research came up. It's an acrylic glaze painting by, you know, this pop surrealist artist, Mark Ryden. And if you go online and just Google some of Mark Ryden's paintings, they're extraordinary. They will just blow your mind. He loves, you know, everything surreal and strange and weird. And it's almost like Tim Burton, Tim Burton-esque to the nth degree, like as far as it can, Tim Burton could possibly go in, in like the surrealist, but also kind of macabre. So a lot of like, you know, corpsified kids and, you know, Alice, you know, Alice in Wonderland, but kind of askew and everything Mark Ryden is just out of this world. So in that first instance, it's the fact that Michael Jackson chose a painter, predominantly a painter who is interested in like the, the outside of the norm to create this acrylic glaze for his um, for his cover art. And then as you go beyond, you know, this, 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 it's an image that just, you can look at it and you can enjoy the image. But then what happens is when you start to decode the heavily, heavily codified symbols in the painting, you can no longer rely on simple like image connection. You actually have to go to experts in like 17th century Renaissance paintings. And that's how I came across um, Isabelle Petitjean. And I don't know if anyone's heard of her, but she wrote this amazing book. Um, she's doing her research on this painting and Michael Jackson's Dangerous at Sorbonne University in Paris. 
And I came across her and we did a really lovely interview with her. And basically she's written a book in, it's in French, but it's coming out in English this year. We really hoped it would come out before the, you know, the album anniversary, but we don't think so. And it's basically called From Mark Ryden to Michael Jackson, um, Dangerous. And in it, she talks about, obviously, Hieronymus Bosch, who is the 15th century painter that Michael was predominantly inspired by. And he did this cross collaboration with Mark Ryden, taking this amazing painting by Hieronymus Bosch, which is a really religious, full of religious iconography, which depicts pretty much the fall of man and the temptation of man. You know, it's called the Garden of Earth, Earthly Delights. And not only does Michael use it and Mark Ryden collaborating te together use so much of it in that cover, they also um, kind of take it further. You know, because that's the thing, a magical thing about Michael. He takes this sort of 15th century painting. And what shocked me the most was that I was recently watching um, Before the Flood, the National Geographic uh, documentary with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's all about global warming. And that painting was the core of the entire documentary about, like, the planets and how global warming is going out of control. And the Garden of Earthly Delights, which Michael is echoing so much in this paint in this painting, which is the cover of Dangerous, is all about a world lost to mechanization and industrialization. And we've destroyed the beauty of our planet through our relentless use of our resources. And this kind of just struck me as so powerful that, you know, Dangerous is 25. And dangerous signifies so strongly just at the artwork. You know, you don't even get, before you even open anything, that artwork is speaking so strongly to us. And of course, you know, the eyes, you know, the Michael's eyes peering through this mask of heavily laden images. And it's like this thing from The Great Gatsby, you know, the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg. You know, what does, what does God's eye see as it looks down upon the world, upon the world of men? And Michael is really presenting himself, not as God, but as an observer, observer of, of the pandemonium that we are creating. So it's just an amazing piece of art, and I'm just starting to get to grips with it. And the more you look at it, the more you research the more that there is there. There's so much in so that painting. Much. I think all of us agree, like pretty much, you know, for years, every time you would pick it up, you would see something new. You guys would agree? Yeah, most definitely. I, um, I was fortunate enough to be working uh, a part-time job in a record store. We <laughs> had the luxury of promotional material, and one of them was a massive standee that took up a whole wall uh, of the record store and it was the album art cover and in like six massive pieces I was fortunate enough to to kind of um, keep all of that when uh, when that um, promotional campaign ended so I've got all that in storage and just to see you know the columns themselves you know six foot tall just the detail in the artwork you know as as Elizabeth was saying there's there's so many different uh, references to it within it so many different interpretations that people take out from it you know it took mark ryden six months to create 
Um, and it was one of five pencils that he actually gave to Michael as, um, as options. And Michael kind of helped steer him, but left Mark Ryden to basically pursue what he wanted to do, listening to the album. He drew a lot of influence from uh, Leave Me Alone. And Michael kind of would, would kind of fine tune here or there saying, I want the, uh, I want Macaulay Culkin to be, you know, one of the kids on the ride. And I want, you know, P.T. Barnum to be wearing a 1998 pin. And I want this and that happening. So it was a, an interesting collaboration between the two. Mark kind of working off the music that he was being fed from Michael and interpreting it. And then Michael also feeding off from the imagery that, that Mark was developing and saying, yeah, can we change this? Can we hint more at this? And, and it is an it is a album cover or an artwork that you can look at for um for hours on end, and each time you look at it, you can find something new in it. It's, it's genius. I was just going to add um what you said there a bit a bit of what you said there um about about the making. Yes, yeah, it took took six months to complete, but as you said, uh, Michael really <clears throat> gave Mark Ryden sort of freedom to do what he wanted to do as the illustrator and as this amazingly talented artist. And um, Nancy Donald, like Sony had this amazing art director. Her name was Nancy Donald. Um, mm. And obviously she had a lot of input. And then, like you said, Michael would, his input would be, right, okay, this, you know, I've seen what you've done here. This is amazing. I just want to sprinkle a little bit of personal aspects here. Like you said, Colkin, Bubbles, you know, Michael himself as a young boy, and P.T. Barnum. So that's you know, how that happened. So Mark Ryden was really sort of given the freedom to, create this amazing piece and then michael would just say you know i want this i want that just to personalize it a little bit mm. and the same thing actually happened with the blood on the dance floor cover will wilson you know will wilson observed still shots of michael dancing in from the dance floor he you know, did his piece you know the way he does his other paintings and then the two chatted on the phone and uh, michael just said can you add a black armband to my right arm so it's a case of you know letting these artists get on with it and then i'll just say i want this i want that Hearing what didn't make it, you know, of the of the pencil sketches that that Ryden made, you know, there was one of a skeleton bursting out from the insides of a clown. There was one which was just a girl holding a skull. There was one which was a similar setting, but in daytime, and it had bubbles standing on top of a pile of animals. So there's there's stuff that you know, and and you look at the um the three D fold out of the the deluxe edition or special edition that got released. Uh, with the girl holding the beetle and she's wearing one sock. And there's all these, you know, great little almost meta references back references back to, to Michael, his career, the music, but just kind of imagining what a dangerous album would be like with a skeleton jumping out of the, the innards of a clown <laughs> as the cover. You kind of go, okay, I can see where Michael may have skewed more towards the, the big collage style instead. Yeah, I mean, a really good way of kind of looking at the, um, Michael's vision for the cover, I think, is if you look at the um, Pepsi, it sounds really kind of commercial, doesn't it? But it, to, to look at the Pepsi commercial that they filmed for um, uh, the, the campaign at the time. So I think it's called Dreams, isn't it, by Pepsi? Dreams, and yeah. It's basically Michael entering that album cover and you kind of get a feel and an idea as to his mindset and how you know how he imagined it to be more than just a flat image more more of something a 3d space that you could enter and walk through it's an incredible album cover and it really it's, it's at this point really where michael not uh, distances himself really from his contemporaries you know this is using teddy riley as a producer but this is not 
Bobby Brown album cover. Do you know what I mean? You, you know, you're looking at pro- proper yeah. avant-garde artwork here. This is not, you know, every other artist's album cover. You know, you're looking at, you're into something special here. What's also interesting, I find though, is around this time, obviously Michael had gone through his depigmentation de- phase and he was still presenting himself. So if you look at the back, of, if you look at his eyes and he was still presenting himself, very similar in tone and look to what he looked like during the, the bad phase. Uh, even on the merchandise, all the kind of official merchandise of the Dangerous Tour at the time. He was still kind of presenting himself in a, you know, with darker skin, you know, looking as he did circa 1986, 87. Uh, whereas, you know, physically he had transformed, you know, so much by that stage. I think the key the key year was in terms of the skin the skin change was actually 92. So 91, he still had that, you know, that, that tone. I think 92 was the year where it really went another direction so i just a curious thought you know when you look at um off the wall thriller bad sonically team wise the all the background they're sort of extensions of themselves and even the artwork are extensions of themselves um the way you know it's mj on a sort of backdrop with a unique playful type set you know off the wall thriller bad and then you look at dangerous history and blood on the dance floor and they're it's a complete sort of it, it sort of represents they're all first of all they're all extensions of dangerous in a lot of ways and it's interesting samar you brought up the point that it's just three albums i'd never heard that before and really in a lot of ways he got it because <laughs> um you know uh history is is uh, an album of sort of uh rejected songs from dangerous in a lot of ways at least the key moments they're sort of the angry songs he decided to leave off dangerous mm-hmm. And Blood on the Dance Floor being sort of a lot of the dance grooves he left off dangerous. Mm, um, and the the artwork, even though they're done by different artists, they're they're very, very similar in terms of that that dark tone, the fact that mm-hmm. they don't use photography when mm-hmm. his Quincy Jones albums used a photograph of Michael as its primary piece of art. Uh, I just find it interesting. And Dangerous is... By the way, as someone in market in advertising, the most cohesive visual campaign probably ever in the music business. Um, it's yeah, exactly what you say. The, it, Michael had a fascination with the macabre, didn't it? It's not normal kind of. How can I say? It's not a fascination with just kind of a particular uh, era. It's it's a particular era, but the macabre element of it. So, you know, you look at the Dangerous album; it's beautiful. But there's something kind of off key about it as well. <laughs> um, and similarly, we go, you know, with work later on, like ghosts, the anime, you know, the choreography, and everything is splendid and beautiful. But it just leaves you feeling slightly un- uneasy as well. And he, he was just so brilliant at doing that. Similarly, on the Dangerous Tour, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later. But the intro to the Dangerous Tour, when he used to have Carmina Barana blowing out the speakers and the video hyping everyone up incredible marketing but again it just kind of makes you think you know it just kind of gives you a slightly uneasy feel about it which is brilliant and you know gets your goose you know gets, gets goosebumps on the skin and you know hair hair standing on end and he was just incredible for doing that one the of point the, is the, well um, taken Samar it's really well taken I think you, what you just said about James said something about visual cohesion for the dangerous era and you said something about like 3D like Michael and um, I think uh Sorry, um, 
Andy said he, you know, he saw it huge, the, you know, the, the art huge. And, you know, Karen and I, um, mother half, we went to Kingvention and they also had it huge. And there's something you say about this immersion into the experience through the, through the album artwork. It's, we are supposed to go into it. And this, the symbolic and the iconography, they belong to art with a capital A, not necessarily the commonly as, you know, the, the, the commercial art that Michael Jackson is so known for. And, you know, we, we're, we're supposed to feel as though we've gone into a bad dream, a nightmare to some extent, because that's what the Garden of Earthly Delights leads to. You have on the left side, you have this like Garden of Eden, it's idyllic. And in the middle, you have this fall of man and temptation. Then the right, it's like apocalyptic. Everything is destroyed. And that is uniquely Michael, that he can kind of balance those elements of like mm. the darkness mm. and the light. Yeah, I mean, he was just the king of juxtaposition, wasn't he? I mean, on the one hand, you have real real adult sounds, real adult content, and, you know, Black and White is an adult track. Given to me is, you know, it's as rock as any rock song you'll ever get. But then on the flip side of that, you'd have Heal the World, which is a beautiful, beautiful song, you know, beautifully, you know, orchestration on it. Uh, but the message and the sentiment is so simple and so kind of childlike. He was He was just fantastic for doing that. And Again, the reason we love Michael Jackson is because his his cultural references created a hum a person and a person who created art that like nobody else, no one else could have created an album like this or an album cover like that. No. I also think it's no. interesting just building on the the whole juxtaposition of him as an artist that in a period where he is probably moving into being the most accessible uh, in terms of what he put out, you know, uh, Dance in the Dream the Oprah interview, you know, uh, the Super Bowl, all that stuff. He, even the lyrics are, are becoming more personal and that continues on through the rest of his career. But visually on the album covers, he's no longer photographed. He's more regressive. Definitely in this, it's just the eyes, you know, on uh, history, it's the statue. It's just there's less of him as a person in a sense, but he's kind of revealing himself through his art, through the music, through the lyrics and kind of retreating more from a visual point of view in the photography aspect of it. I find that an interesting juxtaposition as well. Until Invincible. Oh. And then that was his face right full center, yeah. full screen. I did like that because I think at this stage, this is 1991, mid 1991, late 1991. And we spoke about it again when we were on with Casey and, uh, Bless him, he's like a, you know, dictionary of uh, 1990s music. And um, this is this is the grunge era. So, you know, this is when R.E.M. were massive. This is when Nirvana were absolutely humongous. And there was a realism to, there was a kind of, you know, a hyper-realism to these kind of groups that you could also, you could almost hang out with these people. They looked like people you'd work with or hung out with or went to the bar with. They weren't these kind of distant superstars like Axl Rose who, you know, or Poison or those other kind of rock groups. These were very kind of people real. who were real and down. And Michael didn't, you know, that was what was selling. That was what was massive at the time, especially on MTV. And he still didn't kind of, I wouldn't say lower himself. That's not the correct word, but he still didn't compromise himself or his philosophy in order to kind of 
tail himself to any particular market. He still distanced himself. And in fact, he kept, he was going further. He was like distancing himself, distancing himself even further. Obviously, that kind of culminated with the Oprah Winfrey interview where people hadn't seen him for years or the Grammys where he even says, you know, I've gone from being, you know, where, from who, where is he to here he is again. Because he had been, <laughs> he distanced himself to such a degree that people hadn't been hadn't seen him.
Pepsi presents Michael Jackson, live in Bucharest. Bonjour, c'est Christophe Charlot, auteur du livre sur les pas de Michael Jackson. Merci d'écouter The MG Cast. Just going to punch in a couple of things that were unrelated to um, the Mark Ryden cover that I heard. There. Um, the the three disc um, album that was supposed to be uh, bad. That Michael's idea was for bad to be three discs, um, mm. not dangerous. Um, yeah, dangerous started out as decade, as you know, three to five greatest mm. hits, and then evolved into okay, typical Michael style. How can I max out the minutes here? The other point, uh, I think somebody said that history had sort of dangerous rejects on it i wouldn't call them that um it's a case of a song they don't care about uh you know that michael would evolve songs so they weren't necessarily re rejections he just put them on the shelves and thought right i'm going to put that on the shelf i'll look at it again they're not ready now but they may be in a couple of years time the world probably wasn't ready for some of those songs then either no so it's a case of like earth song in particular Michael told Bill Bottrell at the end of Dangerous, it's, it's not quite ready. And then David yeah, Foster came that. in and yeah, David Foster came in and just added, Bill Bottrell wasn't very happy about that, but he added what Michael felt was missing. So yeah, I don't think history had necessarily rejected songs, just they weren't ready in 91. Yeah, that was poor phrasing on my part. I apologize. No, for yeah. Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, just before my, um, Mike explained to us that, about the history. Obviously, I don't believe Michael Jackson has any rejects. You know, I think Michael Jackson's songs are in a complete league of their own, his compositions. I mean, but Blood on the Dance Floor maybe a little bit more in case of, we're going to scratch around here, you know, for songs that didn't make uh, didn't dangerous make history. Yeah, but yeah. history is definitely but not. Someone was saying about like the album artworks, you know, looking at the later works and then the earlier works and making that comparison. I think that's a really valid comparison. And do you not think that as Michael became more and more socially and politically aware and explicit, because he moved from subtext really in earlier stuff to like, we are the world is very kind of, you know, and um, it's all about like a, almost a gentle way of saying, you know, bring come together and everything, moving towards a very explicit sense of why you want to trip on me, you know, like really moving towards politically and socially You know, nothing is more political than that panther dance, you know, and nothing's more political than using a black panther in the first place. And it got personal. So maybe as the music became more socially and politically aware, the covers <laughs> became more almost abstract. Not just the covers, but the video in some way. So that is perfect segue to the next discussion topic of black or white, the track and the video. It was the first single off the new era It was the worldwide premiere of this short film, which instantly turned me into a mega fan. And we heard earlier how that was the first introduction of Dangerous, uh, the, the video premiere for, for some of us as well. Like everyone loved that song. And the video was not only entertaining and groundbreaking, it was really a force to be reckoned with. What were the thoughts that you could share on the video and what Michael was selling with it? <laughs> maybe sam did you want to start here oh yeah absolutely i mean uh, we'd waited so long for michael for black or white to come out we'd waited so long to 
there was such a mystery and kind of a sense of anticipation that had been building and building and building because we hadn't seen him for such a long time. And then we were start, starting, there was a bit of a drip feed of press coming out. We'd seen him at Elizabeth Taylor's wedding, which kind of proceeded dangerous by about a couple of months, I think. He looks fantastic then. And we were thinking, and word had been that out, the album was coming, it was coming, it was coming. But we'd waited how many years? So Bad was 87, uh, Dangerous was 91. I mean, that's a four-year break. That's a massive break. There were so many stories leading up to Black and White being televised. So obviously in the UK, we're getting it uh, televised live. Not live, but we were having the world premiere on Top of the Pops in this country. But in America, um, it was being broadcast, I think, immediately after an episode of The Simpsons. So the eventual uh, kind of fury that ensued really uh, was around the fact that it was premiered directly after The Simpsons because The Simpsons obviously was a massive TV show in America. Lots of kids would have been watching and suddenly they're thrust into this kind of 15-minute education lesson on, you know, race politics in America and around the world and Michael taking them on a journey to, you know, Africa, to India and, you know, educating people along the way. And it's, you can deconstruct it for hours and hours and hours. There's a million things you can take out of there. Everything is summed up in the first line where he sings about a girl that he's dating and the policeman, or, or the person stops him, not a policeman, I beg your pardon, person stops him, asks him, boy, is that girl with you? The boy, obviously, is a reference to him being a black man with a white woman. And I've I've spoken about it before on other podcasts where that actually, those events actually did happen in his life where he dated Tatum O'Neill. And she was told not to go to the Wiz premiere with him. And they used the N-word in their you know, conversation with her that she can't take her N-word to the premiere. And imagine, you, you know, we're so familiar with the idea of what we think Michael Jackson was like. You can imagine how sensitive he would have been to those kind of things. And when they said that to him, or when they said that to her, he was one of the biggest stars in America. He was absolutely ginormous in America, which counted for nothing. <laughs> because they didn't want her to go to the premiere on the, of The Wiz with him. The song itself was incredible. I loved the song anyway, before I'd seen the video. The video is brilliant, again, in piecemeal, because it's all, again, it's almost as if there's three different videos in that one piece. So you have the family set up with Macaulay, the kind of normal American, you know, suburban family, and then suddenly... It all just goes bananas where when George went from chairs, is kind of teleported to Africa. But again, it's unlike other Michael Jackson videos. And he spoke, spoke about this and he enjoyed the fact that a lot of things didn't make sense and they're deliberately not supposed to make sense because, you know, he just liked that kind of ordered chaos. So you'd have the video to the song and then you'd have this five minute section, dance section tagged onto the end of it, which was completely disjointed from everything else you'd just seen. And quite and quite a statement. Like you've you spoke about in um, your Michael Jackson Academia project, the sort of the Black Panther, the statement there um, as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for anyone who has any sense of you know education on the civil rights movement in America, of course, so Michael transforms from a Black Panther into Michael and back into a Black Panther. But what's really interesting about that is that that was mirroring work that his sister was already doing. So yeah. Janet Jackson had released Rhythm Nation, I think, in late 89, the album Rhythm Nation, late 89, heavily influenced by the Black Panther Party movement. Choreography, or the, I beg your pardon, not the choreography, but the costumes that they were wearing were very heavily, heavily influenced by the Black Panthers. 
there's a song she released called Black Cat. The lyrical content is all about a man who's associated with gangs and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the video, Michael said to her, he said to his ancestor that, you know, what you should do, you should do a video where you turn into a Black Panther and then turn back into Janet Jackson. And oddly, I think he he seems to just suggest that she didn't do that, but she did do that because in the Black Cat video, that's exactly what happens, just with slightly less sophisticated technology. You know, her face is kind of faded out into a Black Panther and she roars. And what you've got to understand is what was happening culturally in Black American music at the time. This is around the kind of Afrocentric movement in music, so and Afrocentric awareness. So you had groups like from Britain, for example, like Soul to Soul. You remember Soul to Soul, Back to Life? Do you remember that? Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So they were very much about Afrocentric, the Afrocentric movement, and kind of promoting, you know, African uh, music and sounds and uh, knowledge of self and all of those things. And again, also that was reflected in their iconography and, you know, the clothing and the way they dressed and the way they wore their hair. Janet picked up on that because when I went to see on the Rhythm Nation tour, the merchandise was very similar and it was very kind of, you know, almost lifted from the Soul to Souls kind of design. So you had those kind of leather uh, leather necklaces and leather chains with icons on there, Africa on there. And so, you know, when... When Michael was doing all of this, there was a there was a movement taking place anyway in America. Spike Lee was a massive director at the time. Do the Right Thing had just come out around that time. I think Boys in the Hood had either just come out or was coming out. So there was a real political movement taking place in America at the time. John Landis talked about it. And he said that about that five-minute section where Michael's dancing. And he said Michael obviously tapped into what was happening in L.A. at the time because you had the L.A. riots just about to happen. But you should listen to try to capture the music and the mood of the time if you can. There's a track Public Enemy recorded called Burn, Hollywood Burn. Again, I think it's around the same era. And Michael wasn't removed from that. He was very, very much a part of it. And he didn't do it in isolation. It was connected to other stuff that other people were doing at the time. And we'll go on, I'm sure, when we talk about Remember the Time and his work with John Singleton. But he wasn't working alone in a kind of, you know, uh, independently there were other people who were doing stuff at the time um, so when we saw it over here in the UK as adults I was in my 20s almost in my 20s at the time it wasn't removed from what we'd been seeing the only slightly difference was the slight difference was there was a Michael Jackson fans refer to it as, as magic there was a slight magic to it but what, it, what we're actually talking about is beauty he, everything he did was laced with beauty so there was a kind of elegance and grace about it even when his smashing the hell up out of the car <laughs> he still does it beautifully you know he still does it elegantly and he does it in a kind of it's if he smashes up a car it's how gene kelly would have smashed up a guy he does it beautifully so even though you know if you have imagine you know who's a cool, who's the, like the latest black art american artist at the moment beyonce i'll give you an example beyonce, yeah, beyonce. right that's, that's a fantastic example because look at the flack she's got for her videos her formation video in particular and her super bowl performance and Imagine if she was on top of a car, smashing it to pieces, throwing, you know, dustbins into windows. And she, she hardly does anything in her video. And she got, you know, blasted for it. Whereas Michael's like tearing the place to pieces. I had, I had a conversation today actually on Twitter where, bless her, Jennifer Lawrence, the actress, was uh, commenting on the protests that are taking place now actually uh, regarding Donald Trump. And, you know, people are, people are very you know highly charged about the whole thing. And she was giving her opinion right saying that people shouldn't resort to 
you know, blah, blah, writing or anything like that. And a lot of people on, on Twitter, you know, kind of aghast thinking, how can you say that from your position of such, such privilege? How could you tell people who have nothing and suffer the worst because of this election? How can you tell them how they need to behave? And my response was, look, even Michael, even Michael, heal the world, Jackson, teared shit up. <laughs> when the shit got real, he teared shit up. But he wasn't, you know, even he wasn't immune to kind of talking to his people. He was communicating messages there that, you know, you do not just accept what is inevitable. You don't have to accept what you're, what you're being served and what you're dealing with. This is around uh, original George, George H. Bush's uh, tenure as a president. I believe it is. And, you know, you still had a very kind of right-wing government in America. So the the courage and the bravery to do what he was doing. I mean, I, I talked about it again on Twitter today. And, you know, in, high, in light of Donald Trump's election victory, suddenly how much more brave her Super Bowl performance is. You know, her referencing, referencing the Black Panther. I mean, I remember uh, Joe Vogel year, a couple of years ago, a few years ago on a round table, kind of poo-pooing the idea that uh, Michael uh, was sending out messages or sending out kind of, uh, uh, you know, using iconography of the Black Panther Party. And there's Beyonce mimicking Michael to such a degree where she's wearing almost the same costume as him. And the whole routine is set up as a movement as from the Black Panther Party with all the all the women wearing black berets and black black leather gloves. And suddenly how brave her performance looks in hindsight, knowing the kind of people who are voting for Donald Trump. I completely agree with you. I've just taught a course. I'm teaching a course on Beyonce and what Beyonce is doing and what Michael's doing. They're incredibly political, black artists. Mm. And I think fundamentally, the first thing we have to accept and acknowledge is Michael Jackson is a black artist and he was very Afrocentric and no more so than in 91. Like he had the Los Angeles race riots. We had Rodney King, you know, you had some of these most... Has anyone seen the brutal beating of Rodney King? Oh, like, has horrific. anyone actually seen yeah. it? It's horrific. I watched it and I was like... And the, 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 the shocking thing about the race riots and Rodney King is that the perpetrators were not convicted of anything. Mm. Now, that is the part of it where we can see that there is an element politically where there is no <coughs> other choice but to stand up and do something. And the Black Panther Party, you know, they started in 66 and um, it was Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. And they're like, the, they were called the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And they were deemed a terrorist organization by the American government. And as they were treated as such. So you can imagine what became of the Black Panthers. But their, their role, they wanted to protect their people, their communities, from police brutality and violence. They saw themselves as needing to protect their cult, their communities. And Michael Jackson, you know, I was on the Twitter, as you, as you said, like, I was like, Twitter seems to be the place these days for these mm. conversations. And one of the readers on MJAS29 said to me, I don't think Dangerous was very political. Oh, my God. What? I know. <laughs> and I was like, Dangerous was so political and so social. And black or white is impacting because it was the conduit through which Michael showcased his politicism and his social awareness in a way that we couldn't ignore. We couldn't ignore his his message 
anymore, especially when it comes to ethnicity, but also when it comes to injustice. You know, he he does tear stuff up in in the video, but there's a reason. There's a real important reason why he's destroying things, but he doesn't make that explicit. What's interesting is that John Landis um, said that Michael actually wanted that ending to be even more sexually explicit mm. than it was. But Landis mm. had to sort of say to Michael, Rain him in. We, we, we've got this and we can't really go too much further with it. <laughs> That's mm. enough. <laughs> I mean, what was interesting at the time was, um, you know, people watching it. I think there were three experiences. I think, you know, Samaya hit the nail on the head. It's kind of like a, a, a three act, you know, story that's being outlaid and and the first part the suburbanites you know with the mother reading the tabloid uh you know mccall and listening to uh to music up in his room it's kind of like that's cute then the the black and white proper um song uh short film for all intents and purpose kicks in and everyone's going that's amazing and then you've got the panther coda and everyone's going what the hell is this it's kind of it had that effect on people. People were shaken up by what they were seeing. They were trying to make sense of it. There's no music. It's just you know a beat, a sound that's created by Michael's dancing. You know it harkens back to the iconography of the lamp post commercial from LA Gear that Michael kind of uh, put together in '89. It's got all these violent sexual kind of overtones. And from what the story was at the time. People were just trying to make sense of it. You know, um, I remember in Australia, it was debuted in primetime. Molly Meldrum, who had interviewed Michael um, several times, hosting a special that ran for half an hour. And to fill in the kind of the final 10 minutes of the show was Molly, you know, trying to make sense of what was shown in that Panther Coda. Um, you know, there were references to absurd things like that he was kicking a um, the beer bottle and smashing it because he was, you know, he had been a supporter of Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, you know, that the Royal Arms Hotel was actually an anagram of Latoya. Um, there were all these things, but it was oh, people wow. just trying to make sense of it. And in a sense, Michael was playing into that. He knew that. There's a story that says that MTV already had the apology that was due to, uh, due to run the next day given to them when the when the uh when the video premiered you know and we all know the story of of the graffiti version coming out in the dangerous short films when that got released and again was that more trying to make sense of and, and michael in a sense having to over explain the anger the frustration you know the the smashing of the kkk the throwing of the <coughs> the, the the trash can through the window Allah do the right thing there's all these nods that it almost like he had to lay it out, really lay it out to people to have them go, this is what I was, you know, trying to say in that moment. Was that a cop out? You know, but he did but did he did he really explain it though? Did he did well, he? <laughs> I don't think he did. I think Michael just he he explained it to the extent that would just let them let it go. Sure, but it yeah. wasn't to the extent, you know, of because the symbolism is so rich, you know, black sexuality, you know, black sexuality and black masculine sexuality has been a very difficult ideological place in American culture specifically. Let's just go for American culture for a long time. And 
the negative stereotypes of black men have been incredibly cruel and miscegenation, you know, a lot of lynching, you know, you, I'm sure we all know the story of Emmett Till, you know, mm -hmm. this boy that was lynched just yeah. for whistling at a white woman. This concept of miscegenation and the fear of like black male sexuality of, of, of as a threat to white women and to white supremacy has its roots really deeply in like cultural fears about racial contamination. And it's really dark. It's a dark part of American culture <coughs> that Michael wasn't afraid to confront. You know, he is so sexual in that panther dance. You know, <laughs> there are some moments of it where you think, oh, wow. Um, but he's doing it on purpose because he's saying I can. And, you know, Prince was the same. You know, these are artists we are really pushing society's norms and they're what they want to accept. Michael was not going to compromise on his vision there because society says you're a threat, you're a sexual threat because of your ethnicity. You know, he wasn't yeah. going to do that. I think in a, in a sense, though, I mean, it, it, it is one of the two examples uh, where Michael got backlash and actually revisited his, his art, in a sense, to either change the messaging that, that he was giving or clarify it. So the other instance being they don't care about us, where there was backlash. So it, it is interesting when you talk about Michael as, you know, definitely making a political statement here, pushing forward and getting that backlash. And, you know, you can almost see the managers in the background kind of freaking <laughs> out about, well, yeah. you're the king of pop. You can't be, you know, pushing it so much. So let's... Well, Sandy Gallen was fired because of Eric Haber, so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So let's, let's go back and kind of, you know, satiate the masses in a sense. And, you know, and that was done in, in, with the black or white video, with, you know, the, the, the spray painting, the graffiti put on. In, in post to kind of justify, uh, not well, not justify is not the right word, but but to really uh, illustrate what he was riling against, to kind of really make it clear for people. And obviously we know how they don't care about us ended. And it's a shame that he, whether in his own concerns or the concerns of management, always towed that commerciality versus, versus his true representation as an artist. The backlash after the black or white video and um, the they didn't care about us issue that Michael didn't want to give in to that. He knew what he meant and he knew, you know, it was being misinterpreted. But I think, you know, the managers, the executives were, you've got to change this, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And Michael was like, I know, you know what I mean with this. It, it's not, I don't mean to be offensive, especially with the they didn't care about us. You know, Michael was standing with the Jews, yeah. not going against them. But because of the misinterpretation, he was forced to change it. But he didn't want to because he was—he knew what he meant. So it, it was sort of forced on him to change both of those projects slightly. There's no actual evidence, is there, of him re-recording They Don't Care About Us? I mean, that's the story that was kind of wheeled out by the press that so he was forced to go back into the studio. But I don't think there's any actual evidence because they said that he changed the words to chew me no. I don't think I've ever even heard that. There's just there's just been versions with kind of the sound, of effect. sound effects, and then yeah. there's also an edit of "kick me, kick me," doubling yeah, up. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if he ever if there's ever actually. I don't believe Michael went back and did it. No, no, no absolutely. Um, I think from from what I understand, it may have been 
I think maybe even Brian Vibbers went in or, or someone, one of the engineers went in in the history project and was kind of tasked with um, finding solutions. Vibbers didn't do the sound effects solution. I know that much. Um, well, the sound effects is, uh, the, the, what's really interesting about them is that they're so bad. That <laughs> they draw almost, attention more. No, no. Well, it's almost as if Michael has, has made an effort to make them or he wants them to sound so bad that, you know, exactly as you say, to draw more attention to it. The fact that what yeah. the hell is this? You know, they've effectively been crossed out, haven't they? Sonically, they, if you hear that, the newer version, they've effectively just been crossed, yeah, like, scrubbed out. Yeah. yeah, It's almost as if having a Mona Lisa and rubbing out, you know, someone going in. Kind of Put a moustache on her or something. Or just rubbing I was just going to clarify the, um, sorry, yeah, the They Don't Care About Us. He did, uh, I spoke to Sandy Gallen, um, and yeah, Michael did go in and re-record just that part of the song, just to oh, really? clarify that bit, yeah. And he he recorded the words "chew" and I think "hike" hike. was the hike me, yeah, hike. Yeah. So yeah, so oh, how, how do we how do we do this without changing it too much? So making it sound yeah. the same phonetically, but changing See, the I always meaning. thought it, I always thought it was like sort of like how they handled DS, where oh the lyrics are officially Dom Sheldon, Sheldon, Sheldon right? No, Dom, Dom Sheldon. Sheldon. Yeah, <laughs> but like again, we know what he's we know what he's saying, yeah. and that's sort of <laughs> again Michael Michael wanted to sing Tom Snedden. And the Sony lawyer said, uh-uh, no. But, but well, he's singing he Tom Snyder. <laughs> yeah, it's just officially. Yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of what's in the book, booklet, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's a deliberate, yeah. And I th- I think, back to Black or White, see, there, I, I always had this, you touched on it, Mike, about uh, MTV having the uh, apology ahead of time. I, th- I think Black or White was, I, I'm pretty certain, Michael's top chart performer ever in his career in the u.s at least and um bigger yeah, than billy jean or any other Earth song is sorry yeah Earth song's number one in the uk right um and yeah you're right so, black or white is America. so the controversy worked and the song isn't the dangerous album I, I made the point when i talked about the history album that the sort of songs left on the shelf for it i'll use the correct phrasing um <laughs> are angry songs they don't care about us earth song um mm. The Black or White is a positive song. The Dangerous Album in itself, with the exception of Why You Want to Trip on Me, as far as its politics go, was, you know, Michael sort of knew, he's a, he's a Motown child, right? And he knew, he, he knew how to make his way into black homes. Or into, I'm sorry, as a black artist, he knew how to make his way into white homes. And you couldn't have done that in 1991 with They Don't Care About Us. And actually in America, you yeah. just couldn't do it with They Don't Care About Us ever because it hasn't happened. Mm, yep. But um, Black or White is a positive video. And, I, and like I said earlier, as a, I was an eight-year-old boy. I didn't know anything about race or racism. I come from a multicultural family. You know, I, I loved Bart Simpson. I loved Macaulay Culkin. I loved those street kids on the Brilliant. stoop yeah. crossing their arms with those cool colors. <laughs> Like yeah, yeah. it was, it was a video designed for ten-year-old boys, and <laughs> and ten-year-old boys loved it. And Michael knew oh. in that, and Michael knew in that era that it was the era of like the ten-year-old boy. It we became ten-year-old kids that there was that everyone was a Bart Simpson, a, a mm. smart, smart-ass little boy in their white suburban family homes with their grumpy old Homer Simpson dads and you know in, in Home Alone captures that character 
Macaulay Culkin, of course, represents that character. The, the dad in that video is sort of, you know, the skateboarding, smart-ass, 10-year-old white kid. And that, that was the target for the black or white video. And, and uh, I, I think he went in through a positive message, and, and perhaps the intent was to sort of reshape the white men of tomorrow. And uh, it worked, though. <laughs> yeah, the reason... <laughs> Um, for a while <laughs> the the reason dangerous uh, is more socially conscious is because michael was really inspired by seeing the world on the bad tour so he returned from the bad tour and began work on the early tracks for decade which were they didn't care about us earth song and black or white um which he wrote in his giving tree so michael came back from the bad tour and spent a lot of time at his new property neverland yeah, and you know, spent a lot of time in his giving tree, and that's where, you know, coming back from the bad tour, he was much more socially conscious. And, you know, his consciousness of the planet was much more to the forefront as such. And he returned from the tour with certain impressions, and that's how that Black or White Earth song and They Don't Care About Us came about. Because obviously on Bad, you've only really got Man in the Mirror, which is of that ilk. And then suddenly Michael comes back from the bad tour, and he's got all these, you know, tracks and ideas and much more socially conscious. That's how that came about. Eat this.
reach out my hand to you I have faith in all you do I reach out my hand Just call my name and I'll be there. Oh, yeah. Just let me fill your heart with joy and laughter. Together, this world is all I'm after. Whenever you need me, I'll be there. Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. This was the album when Michael really evolved from, I guess, a pop star with a conscience, a la Man in the Mirror, into his full-blown humanitarian uh, stance. So let's dis- and, and James, that was great that you sort of led into this. Let's discuss some of the tracks of the Dangerous album. And deeper, we've already sort of touched on the racial issues messages, but what other issues did Michael touch on and how did this impact public perception of Michael? And James, I just want to touch on something that you said in an episode you did with us earlier that Michael's music, and this always stuck with me actually, Michael's music was really a Trojan horse, wasn't it? Yeah. And when in, in America, like I, like I just mentioned earlier, you know, it, you've you've got to be you know americans loved ellen for three decades and you know the ellen lgbtq person uh is very different from you know a more con a more confrontational lgbtq person and mm-hmm. uh and michael jackson was that person for black artists i i have so many friends you know that are of a generation before me who come, like who know I love Michael and they come to me and they say this was the first I live in America mind you middle America um, who come to me and say this was the first black artist my parents would let me listen to the Jacksons Michael Jackson and Michael Jackson knew how that happened he learned it probably through Motown and he certainly knew how to use it to his advantage as an adult artist and the songs are, first of all, it doesn't hurt that they are superficially, at, at the highest superficial level, very attractive videos with a very attractive artist. And they're very appealing songs, very attractive songs, very contemporary, current, radio-friendly songs that happen to have these far deeper messages. Samar, your Academia Project's piece on Black or White, for me, was, and I, I, I know I've messaged you this before, was a tremendous breakthrough moment for me when uh, Damien Shields actually shared it with me and uh, we were together at the time and my jaw dropped. I knew there was, I knew there was depth. I always recognized some of the depth, but the amount of symbolism and depth that was in that particular piece. And it's probably in so many other pieces that we have no idea. I, will you be there? I think I mentioned this on 
the, the one episode I was on prior, you know, Will You Be There uh, contains a sample of, uh, oh my gosh, it's slipping my tongue now. Uh, if anyone can help me out. But the, 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 it's not really a sample, actually. It's the, the orchestra at the beginning? Piaezu? No, 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 no. The melody in, the melody oh, of Will You okay. Be There... See, thank you based, for being a friend or something like that. Thank you for being an angel. Thank, thank you for being an angel. Oh, okay. Which was the, which was the, which is considered by music historians, particularly black music historians, to be the first sort of national or semi-regional hit by a black artists. Mm-hmm. It was the first black hit song, and here's Michael Jackson plucking this element. I mean, I don't know this for sure. He's never really said it. Well, um, he has. I think he has. He did. He had to. <laughs> because he was sorry. sued. Wasn't he? he was sued. Right, wasn't right, he? right. Italy. Right, which, so he sued. Which, he used will you be that? that? Yeah. Which a lot. Uh, yes, yeah, some of this. It definitely came out in the in the case. The wiki even touches on it. You know. So here's. You know. He didn't draw attention to it. He didn't say, "Hey guys, I'm gonna." You know, this is my new song. Will you be there? And and no one in the no one even in the studio at the at the moment probably knew what he's doing or why he's doing it. But he did it. Yeah, and it was yeah. there for someone to potentially question or discover or wonder about potentially centuries into the future. And there's probably going to be those things, just as, as Samar, you and your team have discovered on Black or White, and others have discovered elsewhere. You know, the, the, I, I think I mentioned, I may have mentioned this on, um, uh, another great example is on um, People of the World using Sukiyaki, which is probably which is probably the most famous Japanese pop song ever. And you know, he, there's definitely some melodic elements from Sukiyaki in there. And then there's even a video from 2007 where Michael is in Japan talking to children, asking them about Sukiyaki, saying it's one of his favorite <laughs> songs. I love it. Um, there's <laughs> yeah, same here. There are there's the mystery and wonder that we aren't even wondering about quite yet could i mean we've seen the tip of the iceberg into into what is hidden in his artistry um it's truly phenomenal and then that's what i mean by trojan horse and a lot of times it's political in nature using the first black song is political in nature no doubt absolutely james can i just say uh, this is this is just i was cut off for a bit there but it was fantastic listening to you talk there because it's Everything I've always imagined and believed Michael's philosophy was, and that was to do everything he could to make himself as popular as he possibly could in order to have his say and say what he wanted to say once he got there. So, you know, people had said he had plastic surgery. Okay, he wouldn't have gone on the front cover of this magazine, that magazine, on the, you know, on primetime TV. He wouldn't have got all of that exposure. And there is a sense of having to sell a bit of yourself in order to have your say and Beyonce I believe Bell Hooks the prominent black feminist in America referred to her as a terrorist for uh, kind of lightening her appearance using you know lighter hair colors and whatnot but what has she done once she's had that platform it's something that Louis Farrakhan has actually said that you know the, the outer experience has taken them to a lighter skin and, but the inner experience has make, made them much much darker like you know, what Michael was saying by the time Dangerous came out, his skin might have looked much lighter. But what he was talking about was black politics. It was politics for black people and his people. And um, the Ink Spots uh, uh, reference you made was fantastic because what's really interesting about that is Michael owned the Ink Spots song, Bless You for Being an Angel. 
so when he was being taken to court in Italy over someone was claiming he, he plagiarized their work, he brandished, or him and his solicitors brandished the ink spots, bless you for being an angel, because Michael Jackson owned it. <laughs> he owned the publishing rights to the song. Um, wow. He, um, wow. Yeah. In terms of, I was going to say, in terms of going back to the, the meaning of dangerous, I think you can really categorize it into three parts. You've obviously got Heal the World. We talked about the political, racial, humanitarian songs, Heal the World of Black or White. So you've got those. And then you've got what I consider to be the individual songs, which are gone too soon, which is obviously a tribute to Ryan White. You've got Jam, which is just simply you know a dance track. And you've got Why You Want to Trip on Me, which Teddy Riley said was you know, a response to people going after Michael, like Jermaine. Um, and then you've got, I think people forget, then you've got, the sexual sort of love songs mm. and there's a lot of them on there you've got in the closet she drives me wild given to me and dangerous and those four songs have got strong sexual connotations who is it and then and then there's a subcategory to that of remember the time and can't let her get away which is slightly more lovey and innocent whereas the other four are really strong you know sexually strong lyrically and then you've got remember the time can't let her get away which is a little bit more a little bit softer so you forget that people say dangerous is really political and of course it is but you've got six songs on there which you know about sex and love basically totally agree with both of you i think yeah on both sides i think completely correct like i wrote a chapter i didn't see an identification in michael jackson's dangerous and the main crux of my analysis of dangerous was sex like i was like that's the most i'm like it's the most pertinent subject matter in the album there's so many songs yeah about nearly half the album more than like you know it's and it's really like it's not just um it's not just a uh you know the remember the time is that subsection i, I categorize exactly the same as mike yeah. has done actually in my in my book i write exactly the same like love and sex seems to be juxtaposed Sex is purely physical. You think of something like Give In To Me, She Drives Me Wild, Can't Let Her Get Away and Dangerous. And you have these femme fatales that are, you know, hypnotic and, you know, dramatic. And then you have Remember The Time. Which yeah, is, I'd say know, Can't get, Let Her Get Away is quite soft as well. It's, You'd you say know, don't so. Want to go. Yeah. I don't want her to go, basically. Well, I can't let her go. Whereas the other, it's the other. obsessive as well. Like there's an obsession yeah, quality to the sexual nature. But I also really like this idea that Michael Jackson was with Dangerous, really identifying himself for his audiences as as sexually, you know, um, self-expressive as people like Madonna and Prince, who were like some of the biggest stars of the eighties. He was also he had also things to say on that level musically. Yeah, Madonna really wanted to go to town on In the Closet, but I think it, she went too far <laughs> in terms of her lyrical ideas for Michael. So. I, th- I think sex was just, in the early 90s, sex was a theme that had sort of really, really just boiled over where we can now just blatantly use the word sex, first of all, in songs, which was very new, you know, with... Um, I Want Your Sex and Let's Talk About Sex and, uh, and Madonna's album called... McDonald's album called Sex, <laughs> like, Erotica. you know, Erotica. I mean, I, I like to think, and I, I please don't take this the wrong way, but I like to think those were commercial decisions. I, there's some, there's a quality about Michael's sexual songs for me that don't come off entirely, I don't want to use the word genuine, but genuine. I don't I, think, I agree with you on that. 
Yeah. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. Well, like I said it last time I was on the show when we talked about Break of Dawn and uh, we said about how, you know, this is Michael Jackson who talks about, what you know, what's your favourite thing? Climbing trees. Uh, you know, I'm Peter Pan in my heart. And on Break of Dawn, he's singing about, I, I, I don't want the sun to shine. I just want to make love. And it just wasn't convincing. He didn't write that song, mind No, no, absolutely. But he chose to sing it. And it's just, when he sings it, it's unconvincing. So when, even within the closet, I never believed it in the way that, say, for example, you know, when Madonna sang about wanted to have sex, you believed she wanted to have sex. Or what Prince was singing about, you know, Get Off around the same era. I think it came out, uh, uh, Diamonds and Pearls came out the same same year. You believed Prince wanted to get off. There was no kind of doubt. Our our perceptions of how we receive him are very coloured by our experience of him. And Michael was also very good at performing this persona of like, pure childlike innocence as he was very good at that but lyrically, i believe that was him i believe that was him though i don't believe that was a persona i, I believe you, that was more you him. can be more than one thing that's of course you, know, you, got to... you you can be he could be more than than one thing and the, the lyric like the lyrical and like analysis i did for dangerous just in, inspired me in terms of what michael jackson was saying about his sexual ideas in the songs were not really about him. It's, you know, with Prince and Madonna, it's really personal. It's really personal. I'm, like he's, I'm not sure if I could just punch in something. It's more about conceptual. I think it was more like a conceptual idea. Sexuality is like at the core of a lot of who we are, you know, in our, in, as human beings. And Michael wasn't afraid to go there. And what I found most inspiring about his content is that Michael's songs don't, hierarchize feminine and masculine he always uses vocally both sides of that discussion so you know one of my favorite lines is when he says in dangerous you know you know he sings from both perspectives he doesn't hierarchize you know feminine or masculine but what you've got to remember is what's really really important here is obviously lyrics were massively important to michael but melody was number one mm. true so yeah Yep. But that's why maybe the lyrics don't always make sense or you feel that he's not singing it genuinely because the melody is the thing that he wanted to get across because as he said English you know is only spoken in certain countries I mean a lot but you know the, the melody is a language that is spoken worldwide going back to James's point about you know Trojan horses I think that's true Michael kind of focused on a groove and melody being the the predominant driver and and a a song like jam is a classic example of that where you have you know a a driving funk beat you have this kind of full-on energy and then what michael is doing i you know i i kind of call it an address to the nation um you know it's kind of his state of the union in a sense where he's talking about his experience of the world his experience of what's going on the 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 fall of the baby boomers you know, their their rise to power and they haven't really taken over what they said they were going to do. It's all those kind of things. And, and they're, they are politically charged. And in terms of his sexuality, I think if you look at, you know, Michael from a lyrical uh, descriptive point of view of, of women, you know, you can contrast Billie Jean where he's definitely the victim of a woman. You contrast that with Dirty Diana where he's kind of more intrigued with the sexuality of a woman. And then he contrasts that again with give in to me in the closet. You know, Michael is very much no longer victim. He's kind of, you know, leading and willing participant. And it's kind of, you know, there's a maturing in him 
from a lyrical point of view, that is kind of more expressive, more personal. Whether you buy into it or not is a different thing. But there is, from a from an evolution of an artist's point of view, a very distinct, more real world and more out of focus expression, as well as a more personal connection, than say a song like Smooth Criminal, which is kind of you know again a Trojan horse, great song, and talking about a serial killer, you know. So so and, Ramirez. And, yeah, and, and kind of, you know, the, the fantasy world of cinematic depiction of that. Dangerous mm-hmm. is kind of that, that tipping point where he is a little bit more in the moment rather than narrating the moment. Jam is the best example of a song where Michael had the melody and the lyrics, he sort of scratched it along. You know, he made them up as he went along. I, t- I spoke to Tom Rousseau about this. And if you listen to the demo, then you'll see that Michael sort of, you know, he has jam and then, da, 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 you know, he's sort of humming yeah. the where he will fill in the lyrics and jam is an example of where melody is the song has been created from a melody point of view rather than right i've got this message to give it's worth listening not, to, and that's sorry. not unpeculiar for michael to do that that's how no, he would absolutely he not. would he would sketch the i mean you look at in the back as an example where it's dun, 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 but as soon as the pre-chorus exactly, yeah. and the chorus hits he knows what he's wanting to say but he did He'll, um you yeah. know brad sunberg kind of touches on this in his seminars where when it came time to write those final lyrics. And when it came time to to record those final lyrics, they were just as paramount to him as the way that the melody was. Uh, it was just that the, the the focus had shifted to, yeah, okay, the now... the melody had to be right first. And then, exactly, yeah. And we and should never discount yeah. Michael's amazing lyricism. You know, what I've learned in the last few years of research is that I discounted his powerful lyricism and I was really shown that this man was a poet you know because he was so focused on sound and of course sound is the primary medium through which Michael Jackson communicates we could almost discount his lyricism but his lyrics are fantastic they're so rich and they are also like Trojan horses because they carry with the meanings that we may not really we can sing along and not even realize what we're singing one of the other things where Michael created the lyrics and music at the same time, exactly the same time, was Heal the World. The rest was usually, you know, melody, then lyrics, or but Heal the World was lyrics and music at exactly the same time. It was done in about two hours, the whole thing. I should go back wow. to uh, Jam, actually, the lyrics to Jam. Uh, not so much the lyrics, but the kind of rhythm and the melody for, it, for that. If you do go back to Guy's song, Her, it's like I said, it's very similar. It's, Michael mm. has clearly lifted elements of that, and his favorite guy song was "Spend the Night." Yeah, yeah, and oh. also I just wanted to go back to in the closet about it, it not feeling as genuine as other people's work might have been at the time. And I have to agree with what James Elliott said about it being a commercial decision because if you look again at songs and videos that had come out around that time, Janet had done "Love Will Never Do Without Love You" with her. Do, yeah. And there was Chris Isaac's Wicked Game with Herberts, which was filmed very similarly to uh, In the Closet. In the closet, closet was Michael saying to Teddy Riley, I've got these lyrics. And then Teddy Riley saying, right, I've got this track. And we'll put yeah. the two together. Yeah, yeah. But again, Hence, I think you know, we've got to have a love song here or a sex song here. And it's got to have Herberts. sex song. <laughs> just put one there. Just have, put one. Well, it happens. That's, what Michael, that's how Michael works. He, he had, I've got to have a rock song here. I've got to have a guitar solo here. He, that's how he works. But let's not forget that, you know, yes, we do have these sexualized songs and that's one segment. And then we have these identification songs of like jam and why you want to trip on me. But we also have the, the closeness and affinity songs. The, the, you know, the will you be theirs, 
the gone too soon, the keep the faith. Keep the faith. Yeah. That's a completely different and very beautiful and important segment for dangerous, which is contrasted with, you know, things like planet Earth, the dance and heal the world. So yeah, I planet that Earth yeah, and the dance sorry, are also key, you know, even though they are not audio, but you, there is an audio of planet Earth. You know, but we didn't wasn't included in the dangerous album, but it's in the liner notes, and it was really important and important and pertinent to Michael because he put those words in the liner notes, and he also put them in dancing the dream. So he really wanted us to focus upon those sentiments just as much as the possibly more commercially, you know, sexually type rock Mike, songs as well. Mike and Elizabeth, thank you so much for bringing like heal the world. Up. And, and planet earth and those themes because i think it's incredible how much is jammed into the dangerous album and yeah we've got the the uh, human issues the race issues uh, sexual songs and things like that but this was his era for really becoming that humanitarian and it wasn't just songs like heal the world and and the poem planet earth this think about think about Neverland. Neverland was such a dangerous era concept and reality for Michael Jackson. And it wasn't just about him going to get privacy and, and living and doing his own thing. Neverland was really a humanitarian project for inner city children and underprivileged children to experience something and give them something else. We had the whole Heal the World Foundation and all his appearances for that to raise money. The tour was huge and all profits for the tour were donated to charities, including Heal the World. Michael's aim with this album was to do so much more. And, and even with the Oprah interview, you know, it showed this humanitarian side. So that was this whole other area of the album that he's managed to fit in to this already jam-packed album. You're so right, Hugh. And, you know, one thing I've really accepted from Dangerous is that Neverland is as much a part of the Dangerous expression and the Dangerous era as the music, the words, the philanthropy, the humanitarianism. It's the writings all of the book. The Dane Dancing the Dream. It's all like Karen calls it Gesamtswerk, something like that. It means complete work, the complete picture, the complete package. And Michael had, you know, he asserts that to heal ourselves is to heal our environment and the world is us. So when Michael Jackson writes about healing us, our world and healing ourselves, it's really a personal and a global message. You know, it's about his music is intending primarily to cause some form of healing. And so is everything he's doing. It's not it's not just for the purpose of, you know, financial gain or artistic expression. The core message is healing in all of it. That's the root of what Michael is creating. And I think that's so beautiful and so inspiring. That's my impression. May I just say, in, in the middle of all this, what's what's interesting is Michael once said um, about dangerous. I'd like to see uh, children and teenagers and parents and all races all over the world, uh, years from now, still pulling out songs from that album and dissecting it. Um, and 25 years on, we're doing right exactly that. So I just thought I'd punch that in. It's quite interesting. Such a good right point. Right on track. Such a good point. Right, <laughs> on, right on the dot. <laughs> it's interesting also with, with a song like Heal the World, which, you know, uh, full disclosure, is not one of my favourite songs. But 
you know, a lot of people will kind of say, oh, yeah, that's that's Michael's humanitarian side coming through. But it wasn't as though it was something new. You know, this was, if you go back to, you know, Be Not Always, there was that kind of sense of plight of the world and, and a true care for for what's going on. And you know, obviously with We Are The World and, <clears throat> and, and In The Mirror and things like that. And it's interesting talking about can a political album be a sexual album and, and all those different elements of, of what this album is. And if you go back to a Marvin Gaye What's Going On album, you know, that's very political, but then there's songs about God. There's definitely songs that are about the ecology. There's, you know, there's lots of songs uh, songs about love and sex in there as well. So, and this was part of Michael as well. He wasn't a singular artist. He wasn't a a singular focused artist that was either just going to be pop or just going to be gospel or just going to be, you know, saccharine heal the world songs. His tastes were, were varied and he wanted to represent that and reflect that. And it was part of as much of his growing as an artist and exploring those areas. Sorry. Yeah. Heal the world. We may not think it's, you know, our favorite song, but it's actually one of Michael's favorite songs. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> I, I think, I think the, the one the point about genius. He... The intro is, in my opinion, the best part of that song. And Matt Forger worked on that. And I think, I think it's a genius intro. In my What's really interesting to me was always about Heal the World was that um, it was obviously religious. There were religious themes in it, but there's a Judaism phrase, uh, phrase in Judaism, man. Tikkun Olam, which uh, basically means repair the world basically heal the world and it's clear that michael was connected to that in some way because any kind of artistic representation of tigun olam you'll see a, a world being held by the hands of children or cracks in a world and it was clear that mj had taken that imagery from the judaic faith fascinating what you're just saying and i wanted to just jump in because michael's 2001 oxford union speech I write about in my book, it was all about, you know, that healing. And Michael talks about ancient Talmud, like ancient Hebrew scripture. And he says about, it's all, it's entire speech is about healing children, healing our world, healing ourselves. And he gave it to Oxford and it was not given the respect and it, dignity it really deserved till after he died. And actually, this is the first time I'm actually re realizing what scripture specifically he was talking about. And I do think it's the one you just mentioned there. So that's really magnificent because 2001, 10 years later at Oxford, he was still saying that exact same thing. Well, like I said, if you look at the iconography uh, uh, connected to Tikkun Olam, it's always uh, an Earth, a, a picture of planet Earth with a crack in it, which is the, which is the single cover for Heal the World and was the, cover, was the artwork for the Heal the World charity. I just thought Michael might have misstepped a bit with Heal the World. I always thought he slightly misstepped by putting it on the album because what he did do, he, I'm sure you guys all know the song Someone Put Your Hand Out, which he released as a Pepsi tour uh, single. I always thought it would have been better off had Heal the World been that separate single off the album because it just, you know, it comes on the end of all of those New Jack Swing songs and just before Black or White and it just sounds slightly disconnected from everything else and it would have worked i thought much better as a kind of independent charity release um, i think it was too important for michael not to include on dangerous maybe maybe but you know it could have it could have worked outside of that but yeah maybe maybe that but then the foundation that's 
the, the this was the launch of his Heal the World Foundation, so it really had to be front and center, Probably really album, much yeah. center in the album. Uh, I would have taken someone put your hand out. <laughs> <laughs> that's a beautiful track i love someone it's an incredible song. Know, incredible i love someone put your i wish you know that i do wish deeply that someone put your hand out was on dangerous i really <laughs> well, do you know, there, there's a love song there. there's a love song which is much more there's a love song that is much more believable for michael jackson fans who were fans at the time that is a much more believable record i believe than something like in the closet you would imagine that michael's views and visions of love were so kind of romanticized and like Quincy talked about him thinking in a, in filmic terms, that he always when he wrote love songs they were always kind of over the top and filmic and kind of paintings, as opposed to you know, the minutiae of like romance and holding hands and those kind of things. I think we can argue that we you know we do we don't want to heal the world on dangerous, but it's Michael Jackson's album and it was one of the most <laughs> you know important to him. So I think true. true. Well, it's but yeah. it is worth <laughs> interesting to analyze. You know, uh, yeah, I think a, debate, a better right. a better a better debate would really be Earth Song and, and Heal the World. And I think the best way for me to express the difference between the two is maybe how I'm feeling at this very moment in 2016. But, uh, you know, maybe two months ago, I might have been feeling a little Heal the World hopeful. And today I sit here feeling a little more Earth. <laughs> I feel a little more Earth Song. Screw yeah. you. Here's what you're going to get. I tried to warn you. And now we're hopeless. Yeah. And, and, you know, what a difference four years makes in terms of, of that perspective and worldview. We do have Keep the Faith, which is a very, very key track on the album. <laughs> and I am going to wave the flag for Keep the Faith. No, because... Elizabeth, I will join you. I've been listening to the album in the lead up to this uh, roundtable. And I remember when I was younger, Keep the Faith, I really was sort of, it stuck with me and I, I sort of went through a Keep the Faith phase. And yeah, since the other day, that song is something else. And the gospel, the theme of it, and just the music style of it is such a unique thing and such a powerful thing that I can't even imagine the Dangerous album without it. So affirming. There's so something much. about Keep the Faith that it's, you know, it has its roots in the Negro spiritual and it provides this affirmation that identifies strongly with African-American spirituality and faith. And I thought, I know, that sometimes you need gospel to just kind of lift, it lifts you up a bit, you know, it kind of feel like Michael saying, come on, you know, yes, it's, it sucks, but come on. And we need that. I think it's something we do need because, you know, I, I echo your sentiments entirely, James. You know, I had a whole day when I just, you know, I felt very lost. Like, what do we do now? Like, we don't have a plan for this. You know? But songs like Keep the Faith encourage us to keep moving forward anyway. Keep, yeah, Keep the Faith is an example of Michael's continuation. So you've got, for Billie Jean, you've got, um, who is it? For Beat It, you've got Give In To Me. And Keep the Faith is an example where it's, in terms of the writers, so, right, you know, Saida Garrett and um, Glenn Barlow Glenn wrote Barlow. Man in the Mirror. So on Dangerous Hits, what the hell can they come up with for Dangerous? <laughs> I think it's actually, out, uh, from the entirety of his career, I think it's his greatest vocal performance on that record as well. He's just magnificent because it starts so 
soft and beautifully. And by the time he ends it, he's taking you like literally. He's to taking church. you to church. He literally <laughs> takes you to church. But it's, yeah. uh, what's interesting about Michael, he doesn't have a gospel background. He never had a gospel background. But all of his gospel tracks were magnificent anthems. And, you know, Man in the Mirror is an anthem for for life. And Keep the Faith is, for someone who didn't come from that background, who came from a kind of, you know, from Motown school, to be able to sing. This is where, you know, we talked about it on other shows about Michael mimicking adult behavior. So, which he always did as a kid when he sang, you know, Who's Loving You? He had no idea of those emotions, but he was so brilliant at being able to mimic them. And that's an example of him mimicking, you know, the great gospel singers, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers and those great vocalists and just going wild at the end of the song where he's, he's not contro- trying to control his voice. He's letting everything go. It gets grainy towards the end, but you believe every single second of it. Absolutely. The gospel aspect is something that Quincy brought in. Did Catherine also have sort of gospel roots at all i know she maybe had some country sort well, of country wasn't she that's a, that's yeah, what's interesting yeah. about her okay i don't know i don't know actually i think they were much more country in that sense that joe played in a kind of more bluesy band Blues. so Blues there was part, no kind of gospel yeah. background i don't know much about jehovah's witnesses but i don't believe and i could be completely wrong i don't believe their services are at all gospel mm-hmm. musically okay. in any way but go ahead Oh yeah, you're you're right. I don't think I don't think they they do any of that. But I do know Michael had a close relationship, and I, and I think Mike's going to have to confirm this for me with the Andre Crouch singers. Yeah, and it was and he was a very an Andre and Sandra what Crouch. I think he just had a good relationship with them, and it was it was a choir yeah. that they used Quincy a lot of times. Quincy oh, introduced Quincy that brought them in. Okay. Uh, the Crouches to Michael, and then Michael continued using them on, you know, subsequent the albums. Album. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. thank God and too. It's so oh, yeah. Michael Jackson, isn't it? Like, if you think about what gospel is and the, the roots of gospel, and I don't want to get back into the social history again, but the roots of gospel are about, you know, when you're oppressed, if you sing and you lift your spirit higher than where, you know, you've been told it's supposed to be, you can transcend your oppression and you can... I think a lot of people have found Keep the Faith very helpful in trying times, in desperate times. Well, Michael was a Michael was a Sufi in those in those senses, in the sense that he fully believed in man's ability to transcend their physical realm. So, the dance, mm. for example, the poem in, in "Dance of the Dream," he talks about becoming one with the dance, where you no longer exist, which are very much Sufic principles. That's very very much a Sufic belief that you can actually transcend your base, lower body, your lower self, and transport yourself elsewhere. Um, and gospel, of course, has the same elements. But this was a period where he was very much in touch with Deepak Chopra, who's very much inspired by mm. Jalaluddin yeah. Rumi. And, you know, Michael was reading Rumi. He was reading Tagore at the time. And so a lot of the poetry in Dance of the Dream is very much Sufic-influenced. And, you know, for for young Michael Jackson fans now, I don't know if you get many 10-, 11-year-old kids getting into Michael Jackson now. They've got a whole lifetime of experiences to go through with Michael, which... We'll take them on a massive journey. Really, we saw a couple of convention, didn't we? Oh, we did, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. So, so, oh, it was, it was wonderful. You know, just uh, one of the guests we had was a fifteen-year-old, a, a lovely girl called Alana, and and there was young, younger, far younger fans there, and and I really could see in our eyes that she was having that experience. And that's one of the magical things about Michael is that you know people are going to have their dangerous experience. 
you know, long after we're gone, long after we've gone, all come and gone from this planet, people are going to have the whole dangerous experience, you know, and, you know, experience that music again and again and again. Well, hopefully it's 125. Yeah, hopefully it's all legitimate. Hopefully it's all hasn't been kind of filtered out because, you know, like, you know, we've talked about the black or white video being kind of amended and, you know, elements of that have changed and, Hopefully it will be as authentic as it was when we first all heard it. Um, that's the only thing we can hope for. <laughs> Absolutely. I think and go to the source material if you're a new fan listening to this. Go to the source material because that is that is the truth right there. That is where everything is ha- in proper context and everything. And quickly, just before we move on to the, to the next, which is a, a great segue there. Thank you, Sam, with the visual stuff. If you head over to Michael Jackson Dream Lives On podcast hosted by Elizabeth and the wonderful Karen Merckx, episode 19, your discussion on Dancing the Dream, the book, was incredible. And there's just like if you want to add that to your show notes, listeners, go and check out episode 19. It was an incredible discussion with some amazing points. So, yeah, please check that out. Delighted to have with us one of America's youngest institutions. Five of our very favorite people who in fact are doing us the honor of letting us celebrate with them their 10th anniversary in show business. A great welcome gang for the Jacksons. See if you remember these songs. I never can say goodbye never can say goodbye Even though the pain and heartaches Seem to follow me wherever I go Though I try and strike to have my feet Since they always seem to show Then you try to say you're leaving me And I hope and never say no Tell me why Is it so? Don't wanna let you go Hi, this is Janneke and you're listening to the MJ Cast. If you're after a leading magazine on all things Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, check out Jackson Source. Jackson Source publishes Jackson Magazine annually and it offers a full retrospect of the previous year covering all the news, highlights and events of the first and next generation of Jacksons in the form of articles, interviews, photos, categories and exclusive contributions from Jackson family members. Jackson Magazine is now available and features articles about the message in Michael's music, the legacy of the Jackson 5, 
exclusive interviews with Tito, Jermaine, Tosh, Terrell and TJ, as well as exclusive pictures of Tito, Jermaine, Jafar and Your Majesty, and loads more. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Jackson Source. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Rob Hoffman, studio musician and engineer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ cast. Just heading over to the last topic of this episode, 45, the dangerous short films. Like, Dangerous had some incredible short films. They, they covered the gamut from these social messages that we, we were just talking about, the sexy stuff, the grunge rock, Egyptian royalty, and story-driven videos. How had Michael's videos evolved for this dangerous era? And what was your favorite video, if you want to take us wow. around the table to close out this episode 45? So, well, obviously, we've, we've gone into depth about black or white, um, which I really like. But for me, even years later, I always felt it was slightly disjointed deliberately. He says it was all deliberate. But as a standalone piece, you can't. it's not something you can sit down and just watch in one fell swoop. I loved Remember the Time. I, I always have a special place in my heart for Remember the Time for so many reasons. Obviously, you know, I, I still believe it's the last Hollywood depiction of black royalty. It still hasn't happened since then. Still, Hollywood still hasn't depicted black royalty. Wow. I mean, they've had Exodus with uh, Christian Bale. Oh, as there's been plenty of whitewashed stuff for sure. <laughs> plenty of whitewashed, but you know, they can never find a you know a lead a, male, a black male lead for those parts. But they always have enough black people to be slaves. Incredibly, in the slave films, yep. Well, no, in, the, in Exodus, all the black, all the slaves are black, but all the prophets are and all the kind of you know higher ups are all white. Anyway, that's why it's very interesting because you know Michael made a concerted effort to to do that to put that out there to communicate with these people and. It wasn't just in his work, what he was doing in Remember the Time. He went to Africa around the time, just around that same month it was being released. I believe he went to Africa where he was crowned, wasn't he? King Sar- yeah, Sar- Ivory um, King at the Ivory Coast. At the Ivory Coast. And, um, you know, this wasn't something, this wasn't a commercial, you know, mission. This was something he fully believed in and, you know, was very much involved in it. You know, you don't just turn up in Africa on a whim. You th- That stuff is all planned and, you know, you've got to know where you're going and who you're meeting and all the those things have got to be in place. Um, he got slaughtered in the press for it. No surprise. But um, you've got to admire the man for that. I mean, it's just a, the bravery and the courage to do something like that when you're at the height of your powers. In the closet, I was never a massive fan of, only because it was so similar to other stuff that other people were doing and it did seem that mj was trying to replicate janet's video chris isaac's video uh you know madonna's cherished video um my actual favorite video that he released of the at the time was who is it only because only because well actually for a number of reasons a because it's adult it's very it's a very, very very adult video and there was something that someone once said in a review of the film moonwalker um which is very interesting. It always stuck with me, and it always stuck with me when I thought about songs that Michael sang about women. And it was that in Michael Jackson's artwork, women are always either prostitutes or hussies, right? And that's actually, if you look back at it, that 99% of that is pretty much true. In Who Is It? You know, it's uh, all the women were working in a brothel, I believe, high, you know, high-class prostitutes, high, being hired out to very successful businessmen. Where, where on earth did he get that concept from? 
You know, this is a guy who refers to himself as Peter Pan. Absolutely incredible that he was doing something that adult for the market that he was being targeted at. It's pretty sensational that they that he was able to still not be limited by his market. You know, he, he didn't allow himself to be restricted by, you know, where he was where he, who he was being sold to. He didn't say to himself, okay, well, it would be he would have been even more, I imagine profitable and successful if he had just done more thrillers and more kind of uh, Billy Jeans, if he had just kind of kept, you know, done things easy in his mind, the easy way, but he was making conscious efforts to do really alternative stuff. No one was making videos like who was at the time. And what I really like about it more than anything else is Michael looks so fantastic in a suit <laughs> because, because up until that point in, in the dangerous period, he's always a superhero wherever you saw him. The black and white set, he's turning into a black panther and he's kind of morphing and he's doing this and remember the time he's turning into sand. Suddenly you see him as like a normal guy in a suit with a tie and he looked fantastic. Mm. <laughs> and it was it was relatable as well, which is something I don't think many of the other videos from uh, Dangerous were. You just, not, not that they weren't relatable, it's just, you know, you couldn't be Michael Jackson from Remember the Time. You couldn't hang with Michael Jackson from Black or White. But you could hang out with the guy who's in the Who Is It video. Fantastic. And it's, uh, what happened with the video is quite interesting. And I don't think we've ever really got to the bottom of it, why it was never televised in America, how they ended up using a stand-in for various elements of it. Because it was televised in this country. It was never released yeah. commercially. I think Michael Jackson Estate have released it on YouTube slightly off the page <laughs> Slightly, um, I can help out with that one. Go for um, it, Mike. Um, so Michael, exactly Michael was unhappy with the editing of Who Is It? And okay. um, it was premiered on BBC Two in the UK. Yes, right. Michael was disappointed with the editing and angry about its early release. And I just don't think he was happy with the whole thing. And he sort of shoved it aside a little bit. And Fincher also says that, um, you know, during the actual shooting process, Michael became less and less available for shooting, which uh, was the need for the body double in it. And I, I think also around that time, there was the Dinner with Michael MTV promotion. And so I think at that same time, it wasn't necessarily a, uh, a potentially um, promo-friendly widespread uh, um, for, for, for the kids who would have been entering, I guess, to, to show the, the Who Was It clip. So I think that's why we ended up or why the US at least ended up with that kind of montage clip instead. They, they never also, released a single, did they, in America? Up only after the Oprah Winfrey uh, interview. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, it was, I think, because was of never, the, the response to Michael beatboxing it, people, mm. you know, all of a sudden wanted to, to have it. Because that's the that's kind of odd period where Sony, was it Sony at the time, or Epic, but Sony were, started doing some kind of interest, let's say interesting stuff with his single releases, where they'd, always release singles almost all the time and then suddenly they'd start stop start pulling singles and just releasing singles to radio to try to in their words to try to push album sales which you know god god only knows what they were thinking because they did the same with earth song on history uh completely killed this, what would have been an amazing single in america and it, it was his biggest selling single worldwide just a very kind of that's where things started taking a slight turn for the worse, I think, in terms of not just his commercial aspects, but 
how how he was being received by the public as well. So you know, you'd had three very big singles. Black and White was Christmas number one, I believe, in America at the time. Remember, the time was a massive single. In the closet, was a massive single. And then who is it? I, you know, it all went slightly funny after that. I think there was Jam, obviously, which was an amazing video. But uh, who is it? I think it started going, uh, started marketing of it in America. It took a very strange turn. Yeah, in terms of who is it, it was filmed in June '92, um, and Michael was obviously rehearsing for the Dangerous tour, so he had that on his mind. One of the reasons why he wasn't always available, and uh, I mean, to reiterate the point, Given to Me was filmed in Munich, so you know they had to film that in Munich because Michael had these schedules with his tour. Very busy My- at the time. Um, yeah, I wanted to just jump in with the um, just some little discussion about the cinem- cinematic expansion of Michael in Brilliant. Dangerous and the Dangerous short films because you know that's where I want to move to in the future. I did my first degree in film, and I am I'm a filmmaker, so I kind of know like I have a little bit of an idea about what happens behind the camera, and Michael is astonishing as a filmmaker. This is the first thing I think is important to state and. You know, if I'm going to move my research on in the future, I would definitely just want to examine the short films. He's one of the most influential filmmakers of the present day, by far, because of the reach of his short films. And no, at no time was he more accessible than in the dangerous era. And the funny thing about this is, is that the two short films I wanted to just mention are the exact same ones that Samar chose. So there's Remember the Time, which was unique, especially in terms of how Michael, he, he really powerfully calls us, the reader, the viewer of this short film, to remember a time of African autonomy, a time, and it's something that Armand White writes about in the Michael Jackson Chronicles, keep moving the Michael Jackson Chronicles, you know, Iman from, you know, Somalia, we've got Eddie Murphy, we've got Magic Johnson, who was obviously recently, you know, the whole thing of his HIV diagnosis had come out in the press and he'd been really suffering with that. You know, Michael showcased this, like, African-American talent in such a powerful way. And he calls us to remember a time when the African... African-Americans were solely Africans. And he puts us in Egypt. And he calls us to remember that Egypt's in Africa and, you know... This is something that's really what I noticed, you know, recently we even had a, a white actor being cast as Michael Jackson in, in something. So this is important. This kind of concept of ethnicity and casting in location, geographical location, is really important. I only, we only see it now because we're seeing so many films set in Africa, set in Egypt, set in Persia, set in the Middle East, all cast with Caucasian actors so I think remember the time because of that choice which was really avant-garde Michael was pushing it with that choice there's no non-African American actors in the whole thing that is remarkable in terms of his own Afrocentricity so there's remember the time but then there's who is it and who is it is wonderful because it was a Fincher film and yes I know it had a lot of its issues with you know things that went on, but I did um, I did a, a talk uh, like a blog guest blog in January with Dancing with the Elephant, and we looked at neo noir in Michael Jackson's short films, and neo noir is like 
film noir from the from the late 40s and early 50s, you know, The Big Sleep and Double Indemnity, very much smooth criminal-esque type films from the 50s that Michael loved, you know. But neo-noir is taking it forward to the present day. And, you know, you may know Fincher from things like Social Network, Fight Club. This was Fincher and Michael Jackson's collaboration, which was really in that mode of neo-noir expression. You know, Michael frames himself very similar to the to the main character who is like a prostitute. He actually identifies predominantly with her. You know, he's kind of in a put in a very difficult position filmically where his morals are continually challenged. You know, who is it is incredibly controversial because, you know, that prostitution aspect, it doesn't have to just be sex you're selling. It can be music you're selling. It can be dancing you're selling. But if you're not autonomous, if you're having to sell your soul, then it just becomes a form of prostitution. And I think Who Is It is one of those really beautifully shot films You know, the analysis we did is online. It's called A Look at Neo-Noir in Michael Jackson's Short Films. People are teaching right now, you know, Nina Fonaroff at the University of New Mexico are teaching Michael Jackson in cinema courses at universities. And that shows you that he is so much of a force to be reckoned with in terms of film. He really is. Awesome points, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Mike, wow. did you want to, well, before I move on to maybe Mike, Elizabeth, what is Remember the Time, your favourite video from the era? It's tied with Who Is It? I okay. can't, good, I good. can't let them go. They're tied. Awesome. They're tied. Mike, what about yourself and your thoughts on the, the videos of the era and your favourite? One of the interesting developments, you know, Michael, his use of celebrities, I think. You've got Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Eddie Murphy, Iman, you know, Naomi Campbell and Macaulay. So I think that I think that's an interesting development from the previous short films. You've pretty much got, you know, a celebrity in each short film. Um, I was going to say I was always disappointed that they never managed to get a video made for Dangerous. I think that would have been I think that's yes. one of the great shames. In terms of my favourite short film, I'm gonna go for Jam. Nice. Um, I think the chemistry between you know Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson, two of the biggest stars in there, you know basketball and entertainments, and just the imagery. I think you know the orange and blue, and inside that you know, abandoned basketball court. I think I'm going to go with Jam. Thank you. Who next? We got Andy and James to finish up this episode. Who would like to go first? Uh, it's it's. Come on, guys! It's black or white. I mean, what? It's got to be black or white. And and it, and I think as fans, you know, we sort of, you know, how many people come? How many of your friends come up to you and tell you how much they love Thriller or whatever? And we sort of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you do. And black or white's kind of the same way. But I mean, we some we probably spent an hour or more alone on that short film today. Um, the impact it's made, it. it it's black or white, but I will tell you this: Will you be there? It's probably the most disappointing moment in the Dangerous campaign because, I mean, for such an amazing, magnificent song that sort of represents really who Michael Jackson is um, for a lot of us, to to have that cop out, cheap 
budget video where the first 15 seconds of it are literally on mute because of a lawsuit. And, you know, it's this VHS footage of a, you know, a tour show. It's, I wish that had a better video, in, in my opinion. But um, Black or White is by far the best, probably, of his career, really. Thank God we got the, uh, was it the MTV 10th anniversary performance of Will You Be There? Exactly. Thank God we got that then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for me, uh-huh. um, my favorite, I, I kind of concur with what everyone said, but my favorite is definitely uh, Who Is It? You know, this is a, a video unlike any other Michael video uh, or short film. It is just, you know, beautifully shot by Fincher. It has all the hallmarks of kind of, you know, early 90s uh, filmic techniques and storyline. There's, you know, little nods to Blue Velvet. It's just a, a, a fantastic piece, beautifully shot, perfect for the dark, darker side of Michael and, and the dark tones that are that are referenced in the song itself. Um, my other favourite, which uh, hasn't been spoken of yet, is actually the David Lynch teaser that went with the with the launch of of Dangerous. So this is you know Michael's first teaser prior to uh, you know history is probably the one that people know most about, but to um, have David Lynch at the helm of a Michael Jackson project was just heaven for me. And uh, what what those the, the two of them accomplished for a really brief, I mean, I, I don't even know the running time. It, it might be a minute, might be less than a minute. It's just so powerful. And you, you kind of get a, a hint of that in the, the Dangerous, the short films, when you see the, you know, the, the face of Michael coming out of the, the, um, the, the landscape and moving towards camera and, it's just such a powerful piece that, um, you know, I wish a lot more fans knew of it. And if you haven't seen it, I would hunt it down on YouTube straight away. That's just a brilliant piece of filmic uh, exploration and experimentation. And I would also just nod to the actual Dreams commercial, which uh, Samar had mentioned earlier, as it is, a, you know, a, another trippy kind of feast into the, the artwork and the, the iconography of the album. That kind of came later on in the in the campaign, but still just a, a fantastic insight into Michael as an artist and well worth checking out. Thank you for mentioning the the teaser. Yeah, it was so often forgotten because it's such a tiny little short piece, but it is really visually so unique and incredible. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And yeah, uh, Sam and yourself for mentioning the, the Dreams commercial. It is really stunning, really stunning. I would just hope that, you know, we we got that release of all of the videos at some point, but the estate really need to remaster all of the videos properly, package them <clears> on a HD format. And Elizabeth, can you imagine <laughs> the commentary tracks from the oh people that worked on them and making ofs? Like oh we did gosh. get some making ofs on the Dangerous Short Films, which I think is the best video collection that they ever did release. But, oh, they could do so much more. Dangerous Era, we were really spoiled with... Um, releases of visual arts it was incredible it's a it's a real pity actually because no one's mentioned it's quite sad it's not sad but you know i can understand why people have chosen what they've chosen but there are other videos i mean jam is a particularly brilliant video but heal the world was a beautiful video there's for us as grown adults now kind of world weary it might look a bit twee and it might look a bit sentimental but it is beautifully filmed and the sentiment in it is quite touching and quite beautiful and very very michael you know absolutely these and a core of, of this whole era. These kids kind of, you know, softening the hearts of these soldiers, 
and you know it's interspersed with kind of war footage and whatnot yeah i mean you've got to love michael because you know it's not cool you know he could have he could have sold many more records if he wanted to be cool and just trendy that's not cool and he didn't but he didn't care he wanted to say what he wanted to say and he he didn't let anything stop him now the video cool. is very beautiful also the just primacy of children as well there it's powerful uh, children are so primus, prime, primary in it. You know, Michael loved to do that, put children at the front of things because it's their world, you know, for him. It's their, they're the future. Yeah, Gone to Seem was sort of detached a little bit from yeah, Sony. It was, more, it was more Michael's um, videographer who sort of helped put that together and Sony didn't have as much of an input with that one. Uh-huh. Wonderful. That's a beautiful piece. That's a beautiful piece gone too soon. Just it is kind of floating around the the, the bedroom of of Ryan White in a sense, and uh, you know for what the song is about and the de- dedication to Ryan White. I just it, it, I would have anyone be hard pushed to watch it and not get emotional. I don't think you'd want Sony to work on that one, really. <laughs> no. no. Well, also, also I you know because of all all of the election stuff this year in the last few weeks actually. It, uh, earlier this morning, actually, I was watching. Michael's Gone Too Soon performs at the Bill Clinton inauguration and brilliant performance, but so much of what Michael was about was in the speech that he gave beforehand. He didn't have to do any of these things. He didn't have to yeah, say definitely. any of these things. You know, Fleetwood Mac turned up, they performed. They didn't talk about, you know, uh, honoring Ryan White and talking about, you know, funding for AIDS and all of those things. He had no, there was no incentive for him to do this, but he, he saw himself as a, you know, a, a, a spokesman for people and for children in particular and he, you know, I posted something recently. Actually, I didn't post it on Twitter. I posted it on my own Facebook about Michael wanted to be a, a voice for the voiceless, and he all, always mentioned wanting to do that. And it's something actually we didn't talk about when we were talking about, about the black and white video. How he begins the video, firstly in Africa, and then he goes to America where he's dancing with the uh, uh, Native Americans, and how you know in this in this world where people are getting caught up in, on Twitter for cultural appropriation. Michael used actual Native Americans. He hired actual Native Americans where he didn't have to do that, where other people didn't do that, and where people nowadays don't do that. He did. And I believe the uh, the Native American woman who was uh, uh, the management for the dancers that were put together, she mentioned Michael. She spoke about him years later saying, because of him, we were the highest paid dancers in any in any music video ever in America because we were able to negotiate different rates for being Native Americans only because Michael allowed us to do that. And, transport to Russia. Sorry, Sam. Yeah. But sorry, no. But imagine, you know, years later, in, in you know, in this kind of very kind of right on world on, on the Twitter sphere that you know where people get trip up all the time politically. Michael would have been was like million miles ahead of everyone else. You know, who was using Native American dancers where everyone else just kind of gets. Hispanics or Mexicans or whatever puts the feathers on them and then pushes them out to the front. That's what people would do now. He never ever thought along those lines. He always thought universally. And I, he respected cultures. He respected. Yeah. Exactly. He had a lot of respect. Just, yeah, it wasn't just yeah, and it wasn't just an artistic endeavor. Those are his actual beliefs and philosophies. So you know, the story about when he went to uh, a, a tour to a tour to Australia and he asked you know a local people there to take him to Aborigine. Uh, 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 places where aborigines were kind of mistreated and whatnot and not talk about it publicly and he asked people not to talk about it not to talk about the to the press about it because he didn't want to be politicized for his commercial endeavors um 
so it was something that he, he adopted in his life. It wasn't just his artwork. And he tied himself so closely to his art, which was pretty magnificent. I think and it I was think an incredible just, example of a cultural appreciation and not just an appropriation at all. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, Absolutely. Michael, he's there with them, but he's not dressed as them. And I think, That's as you it. say, it's an appreciation for, for a culture. He's not co-opting it. He's not, you know, trying to repurpose it. He's, exactly. uh, he's, he's standing alongside them, but he's staying true yeah. to who he is and respecting them in, in, in doing so. Just um, with regards to the danger, uh, the black or white video, back in episode, um, the Kevin Stay episode, where we discussed uh, the, the choreography and the filming of the video, those scenes actually were not originally in it. It was set in those stark sets with the grey background with the actors and the performers in front of just a plain background. But then when they got the video, they were like, no, we didn't quite get what we're after here, so let's go go film live sets instead right. of just a live set. And that's where so much more was added to that video and we're so lucky that they, they did go and add those back in. That was the episode was, 34, June 25th special with Kevin Stay this year. Wow, okay. Michael was also, I've got to say, Michael a was A great also, episode, by the way. Thank you. He was <laughs> also loved that episode. In the, that, in the sense that he was releasing this stuff at a time when technology allowed him to do what he was doing. So, for example, I'm trying to think of the 10CC, the British band here, um, they released the video. Cry. Cry. So, you know the video I'm talking about. Where they. Yeah. It was a rudimentary version of the kind of face morphing thing that they would, that Michael was able to do with John Landis. Brilliant video at the time, and it was quite you know it was quite sensational at the time. People referred to it as being this amazing video. Look at it now compared to black and white, and it's aged so dramatically. But black and white still looks fantastic because, thankfully for Michael, he was at a time he, he existed at a time where technology allowed him to make such brilliant work and make such kind of timeless work as well. I was just going to say about black or white, what's interesting as well is transporting to Russia. Um, you know, the Cold War just ended. Mm. So that's another brave sort of... Very brave. Well, everyone, I think we're going to wrap up this episode 45 at that point. Just so listeners know, the next episode 46, the topics we'll be discussing are dangerous appearances and performances, dangerous 25, dangerous style... And then we're going to be talking about some memories from the era as well and and just how it holds up in uh, Michael's discography. So that will be in part two of this Dangerous 25 Roundtable. So tune in for episode 46. Uh, what I'm going to do after I give our details is I'll go around the table and let everyone uh, share their contact details and projects and websites. So just for um, our listeners, if you're new tuning into the show, we are available on iTunes. If you're not already listening to us on iTunes podcast app, we're across Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Podbean, and you can search for us across the uh, Android podcast apps. Our hub, our website is the mjcast.com. Across Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you can find us as the mjcast, all one word. We're over on YouTube, youtube.com slash plus the mjcast for audio minus the uh, the music. And we're over at Tumblr, the mjcast.tumblr.com. And we look forward, like last time, to your feedback on this uh, roundtable discussion over at email which is the mjcast at icloud.com 
Um, we have played some tracks in this episode. I think we will have played, hmm, I think we might have played Remember the Time, the New Jack main mix. We'll have played the Newark mix of In the Closet. And how about the immortal version of Black or White? So we hope you enjoyed those tunes. There'll be more tunes uh, in the next episode as well. If you're going to be talking about the episode across social media, the hashtag to use for live tweeting or discussion and interaction, the hashtag will be hashtag the MJCast ep ep 45 so that was hashtag the mj cast ep 45 and we look forward to having interaction with you and how about we go around the table um starting maybe with mike if you could just farewell and let people know your awesome book and where to find it and any other contact details you want to share yeah thanks everybody it's an amazing discussion amazing insights uh, yeah making michael um, is available on amazon Barnes and Noble and all the usual outlets and also uh, signed copies from my website, which is makingmichael.co.uk. I'm very active on Facebook. Um, if you search Making Michael and uh, also on Twitter, um, it's Mike Smolkin one is the Twitter handle. Um, I'm also on Instagram I'm under Mike Smolkin. So I'm very much around on social media. Yeah. So great discussions and thanks everybody. Thank you so much, Mike. Elizabeth, how about your details and projects? Okay. Uh, bye, uh, bye, everyone. <laughs> this has been so much fun, and I really loved this conversation. Um, you can find my Michael Jackson online courses at onlinearteducation.co.uk. Um, the Michael Jackson Academic Studies Journal you can find at michaeljacksonstudies.org, and the podcast of the journal is at michaeljacksonstudies.org slash podcast. My book, The Dangerous Philosophies, is available on Amazon and from all the major retailers, but you can get signed copies uh, from me at onlinearteducation.co.uk slash shop. And you can find me on Twitter under the handle at ElizaWriter1 or at MJAS29. And just before we move on, just please uh, send our regards to Karen Elizabeth as well. I will do. Thank you so much. Samar, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Q. Good to speak to you for the first time. Very, yes, very I know. Time. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of love, man. Lots of love. So, yes, I am on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter, the Michael Jackson Academia Project, which is uh, at the MJAP. Uh, we also have a website, the Michael Jackson Academia Project.wordpress.com. I mentioned it before, there's only two or three blog posts on there. All of them are very, very important, very, very vital and have been tweeted and, you know, gone out into the oblivion. Um, so it's very much worth having a look at those. No projects to sell, nothing. I'm, I've got no book or anything like that. So uh, you can move on now. <laughs> no worries. Thank you, Mr. Andy Healy. Yeah, uh, as everyone has said, it's, this has been a fun discussion. I'm looking forward to to uh, seeing where it continues in the next episode. People can find me on Twitter at mj underscore one underscore zero underscore one, and uh, they can download my free uh, eBooks that explore Michael's music and artistry at mj101series.com. Uh, there's six ebooks to download currently, and as I said uh, earlier, on November 26th, uh, the Dangerous Supplement will be released. So uh, head on over.
definitely do not miss that folks it'll be gorgeous i can guarantee it already i've had no hint of it even though i tried <laughs> but, but it will be gorgeous and so worth it and thank you for celebrating dangerous 25 in that way andy and last but not least without whom the mj cast would not be possible mr james allay oh please uh first of all i just want to say that um i i'm it's such an honor to to be on this with you guys um, Jamin and Q, obviously we're friends. I love you guys. But Samar, Elizabeth, Andy, Mike, I've been a huge fan of you guys forever. I, I don't belong on this call with you guys. So oh, it's been an honor. Uh, I, I, I don't have anything to sell either, but uh, um, I love every MJ fan. So you can find me on Facebook, James Alay. You can email me, Alay, A-L-A-Y, dot James at gmail.com. Well, I'll plug Escape Origins, which was um, an incredible book that you had so much to do with, James. And Escape Origins was uh, the Damien Shields release book, but put together so much with with your input and 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 expertise, James. So EscapeOrigins.com is where you can get that incredible book. So I did it for you. Thanks, James. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're blushing Thanks. right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wow, but you're perfectly said. You guys. So blessed that you could all join us today for this um, incredible discussion. Thank you for uh, this episode 45 and what we're about to record for episode 46 for this Dangerous 25 celebration and roundtable. It's so important that this album is celebrated and this is just our little <laughs> yes. bit to do that, which we will discuss more in the next episode, of course. Thank you, everyone. Wonderful. Um, have a great weekend and tune in for the next episode, episode 46. It's been terrific so far, and I know that we've got so much more to hear from you all. So, everybody, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Michael on. I knew right then and there There was something different about this girl The way she moved Her hair, her face, her lines Divinity in motion As she stalked the room I could feel the aura of her presence Every head turned feeling passion and lust the girl was persuasive, the girl I could not trust. The girl was bad, the girl was dangerous.
came at me in sections with the eyes of desire. I felt trapped into a world of sin. A touch, a kiss, a whisper of love. I was at the point of no return, deep in the darkness of passions and sanity. Jay Cars.